All right, folks, welcome back to Hot Takes Only. This is episode 24. Willie, my guy, welcome back to the show. How you doing this evening? I'm doing great, bro. Good to see you. Good to see mm-hmm. you as well, my guy. Uh, here we are. Yeah. October 29th, and there's no baseball. Yeah. Um, I'm sad. I got to be honest. That's, that's, the only, that's the only emotion right now, really. I mean, yes, congratulations to the Dodgers. Well-deserved. First title since 1988. But mm. it means no more baseball until February, and that's just the re- beginning of spring training. So, you know, you and I being the baseball fans we are, I think we're, we're pretty upset to see the end of a season. But like you and I were just talking about before we decided to hit this record button, uh, we didn't think we'd be here. We didn't think we'd have a season. No, and I was, I was very worried that even during the season they weren't going to complete it. I mean, there were so many COVID. Teams had COVID outbreaks, and it was just – it was. but at the end of the day – to get into the postseason and then to really not have COVID problems until like the last game, mm-hmm. um, very very miraculous to get through the playoffs and crown a champion. Yeah, and we'll we'll touch on that in a minute. And I just want to use this first little bit of of the show to kind of contextualize this whole season. So, you know, before a, a technical difficulty earlier in the show, <laughs> earlier in the live stream, Willie and I were talking about does this win for the Dodgers mean there should be an asterisk next to their championship? And I said no, of course not. If you can go out there and you can win a championship under these circumstances with the type of situation that all those players felt for the entire season, albeit a short season, but for all those seasons, you deserve to be up there with every other team. Yes, there were more teams in the playoffs, and that opened the door for everyone else, but the Dodgers still had a stupidly high winning percentage this year. They won 43 games out of 60. That's stupidly high. And on top of that, they led the league in basically every statistical category, or they were near the top in every one of those categories. And during the postseason, it was either clutch t- clutch hitting, great defense by the best player in baseball, not named Mike Trout. And, you know, you and I are talking about this. Does it deserve an asterisk? No, of course not. Yeah, no, I, I would completely agree. I mean, they everyone had to deal with the same situation. At the end of the day, they won fair and square. Um, and we got through the postseason until the last day without really COVID. So it wasn't like teams were really missing anyone um you know of course some teams had players you know opt out but and they you know they won the the uh series without the fans roaring at dodger stadium right Mm -hmm. they would have had home field advantage throughout the playoffs so you know i I absolutely think uh it doesn't deserve an asterisk and you know of course fans will will try to take it away yeah especially giants fans and, and people who just don't like the dodgers in general will try to take it away just because of that you know that built-in animosity, if you will. Sure, I, I would say the only the only maybe what ifs you can have besides you know injuries if there's a long season is just you think about some of the young teams in the playoffs and maybe they would have had time to gel. Like if you look at like a team like the Padres, you know maybe the Marlins, um, even to some extent Tampa Bay, who's this is kind of their second year being good. Maybe over a 162-game season, they would have, um, you know, developed more. But overall, I don't think at all you can put an asterisk. I think they they handled the situation just like everybody else. Yeah, I mean, and you have to think about the fact that back in March, when the season was initially canceled or postponed, yep. I think you and I were both kind of in the same boat. I, I don't know how much we talked about it at the time, but we're in the same boat that, like, is there actually going to be a season? We don't, we don't know who's going to come back first. I honestly have no idea. And just to have a season in the first place was something great. 
because there's more than just a actual physical health element of the pandemic that affects players. It's a mm -hmm. mental health bit of it too. And I want to use a couple seconds just to contextualize and talk about the importance of mental health. Willie and I were talking about this before we even went live on the stream. Mental health is one of the most important things to take care of, period, regardless of whether or not we are in a pandemic. Being in the situation we are only exacerbates the need to take care of yourself from a mental perspective, whether that means practicing extra self-care, whether that means going to see a medical professional if you do need help. There's no shame in doing that. I've talked about this before. You've talked about this before. There's no shame in saying, yeah, I need to go see someone who is literally trained and paid to do this very job. And so it has its pretty significant toll and it means you have to take care of your mental health, period. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, it's so important. And I, I just think that the, you know, the pandemic in particular, whatever, you know, mental health issues everyone does, it, it really exacerbates them in ways that I don't even think we realize to what extent it does. And so it's the, you know, feeling good is the most important thing there is. So I encourage everyone to, you know, do whatever they can to help themselves. It, it shouldn't be a taboo subject. It should be just everyone wants to feel themselves. And hopefully we can, you know, by keep talking about it, we can hopefully remove the stigma and encourage people to, to seek out help and do what they can to help themselves. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's really the name of the game. So, yep. you know, we're all in this, we're all in this at the same time. There's no shame in saying, you know what, I'm not doing great right now. I need to go talk to someone. And really all it comes down to is just swallowing your pride. If you do think there is an element of pride holding you back or just understanding that these are tough times for everyone. Let's, let's get through it together. Mm -hmm. there, there's no shame in saying that, but anyways, uh, so really quickly before we get into the nuts and bolts of the World Series, and we'll talk about Premier League later, we're actually going to be doing something new with this podcast. So usually we'll have the full version of the show uploaded and uh, published 7 a.m. Pacific time, 10 a.m. Eastern time on Fridays. But we're going to do something a little different this week. We're going to release this podcast at the same time, but there's going to be two segments. The first mm -hmm. segment's going to be baseball. Second segment's going to be soccer. And we're going to split those up. So... There will actually, now that I think about it, be three versions. The full version of the podcast, the soccer version, and the baseball version. It'll have the open and then that specific segment. The hot take specific part will both will be in both sections, so you don't miss anything. If there's if there's a take about either soccer or baseball that, mm. that you don't miss in one of the segments, you'll be able to get the full picture. And ultimately, you'll get a better view of what it is that we're talking about, and hopefully we'll provide a more entertaining show, but also one that is segmented towards people who actually care about one sport more than the other so we're here to talk about the world series first segment's yeah. always got to be about baseball especially when we just had the end of the world series we touched on it briefly but of course the dodgers winning the first title since 1988 mm -hmm. willie i i don't think there's anyone that can really take this away from the dodgers or really say no they didn't deserve it they absolutely did yeah no they absolutely did um and i just think that you know it's really a beautiful story in the sense that obviously 32 years for a historic franchise like the Dodgers. And you think about really ever since 2006. Now the Dodgers did have a three-year stretch. I think it was, you know, 29, 2009 to 2011 or something like that where they did miss the playoffs. But overall, this has been a 15-year run where they've been, they've had really good teams and, and come up short in the playoffs a lot of time. And this team was the best team that they had. Um, some people think last year's team was, but I think this year's team was the most complete in the sense that they had 
they were so complete. They had a great lineup, a great starting staff, a great bullpen, great depth. And um, they were able to get it done by thin margins and, and all credit to them. And, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful story because a lot of times in sports, there are great teams and they, their window closes without them getting a championship. So for the Dodgers to get over the hump was, was truly a great fashion against a very good Tampa team. Yeah, obviously the prevailing storylines for the Dodgers are always going to be being on the wrong end of two cheating scandals with the Astros yep. in 2017 and the Red Sox in 2018. One, albeit much more egregious than the other. Yep. But still, you have to feel as a Dodgers fan that you were you were shortchanged those couple years because those were both very good baseball teams. They were both very good Dodgers teams that deserved to win a World Series. But, you know, obviously sports are not always, I guess, quote-unquote romantic like that. They don't do those, you know, right off into the sunset every single time. Certain sports, yes. But other sports, it doesn't really happen. But with the Dodgers, what they did was not, okay, we're that team that everyone is going to be kind of, you know, saying, oh, they're never going to do it. They have all this money. They're not going to be able to get everything done correctly. And, you know, they're not going to they're not going to mm-hmm. do what we expect them to do. But no, this is a team that they have had a, a, a specific mission since Magic Johnson took over in 2013, which is yeah. to take the Dodgers back to the top. And since 2013, I mean, I know this this started back when when Kershaw was uh, a rookie. And, you know, yep. it, it goes back longer than. Pretty much every other player, or even before Kershaw was a rookie. Uh, It goes back even further than that. But 2013 is when there was a real cultural shift in the organization that went from a good, solid baseball franchise to an elite baseball franchise. And they have become the elite team that the market deserves. uh, Mm -hmm. You know, the second biggest media market in the country behind only New York. And really just the team that this city deserves. Because if you have ever been to LA and you've ever been kind of around you see Dodgers hats everywhere you see Lakers jerseys everywhere this is a Dodgers and Lakers absolutely period Dodgers fans are Dodgers fans they may not necessarily be baseball fans but they are Dodgers fans and they live and they die with their team and to see the Dodgers now put it all together go out and get the second best player in baseball only behind Mike Trout, who I think is the undisputed best player in baseball. A lot of people will say that Mookie Betts is now better because he's done it more in the postseason, but Mike Trout's also been on worse teams throughout his career consistently. He's only been in the playoffs, what, once in his career? And they lost in the first round that year. Yeah, maybe that's twice. right. I think yeah, they got one. swept, too. They got swept. Yeah. As well. mm-hmm. So if you put Mike Trout on a good team, he's going to do well in the postseason, in my personal that's opinion. True. But, mm-hmm. you know, that aside, they went out and got Mookie Betts. They went out and got David Price in the same trade deal. Yes, Boston was trying to dump a lot of salary, but they made a smart move and their return paid so many dividends, especially in the last two rounds of the postseason. The yeah. catches he made in the in the championship series and the World Series and the plays he made both on the base pads, in the field, and at the dish, you can't ask for anything more from your superstar. It's amazing. He you know, they it's truly amazing how Acquiring him fit every sense of the word. They got him to to elevate the team over the top, and he really did truly put him over the top. Like you said, what do you think about what he did at the plate and on defense in the NLCS? Sorry about that. And then you know in 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 World Series and particularly in Games One in uh, N Six, you know he was huge. He made the difference. So absolutely um, a great addition uh, to the team. But why I just think I just want to talk about how historically 
great this team was. And I, I think what's just so amazing is just to really see the evolution of this team and, and what they've become in the sense that, you know, this was a team we, we always used to talk about that, you know, in the past few playoffs and World Series, they struck out a lot and they struggled with situational hitting. We talked about the struggles of Clayton Kershaw, the inconsistencies of the bullpen, uh, the maybe at times overly mixing and matching of the lineups. All those, all those things came to fruition and were different this series. Clayton Kershaw was great. They, they did max the lineups ready lefty, but they didn't mix and match as much as they did in the past. The bullpen was the difference in games five and six. And they hit an historically great with two outs. Like, it's incredible setting by far the most runs ever uh, in a World Series with two outs. And just the playoffs. So yeah. that was probably the most incredible team. They, they, they just, the evolution of this team, they were truly just a great, a great team. And it's amazing that Tampa even got as close as they did, if you ask me. Yeah. No, and that, that shows you, number one, how good Tampa Bay is with that limited payroll. But also... You know, on the yeah. other hand, it's just a testament to how good the Dodgers are and how good they have been in the last few years. And, and you made a couple points that I want to touch on. Yeah, A lot of that mixing mm -hmm. and matching and the, the yeah. roster construction comes down from the front office. Obviously, the roster construction is entirely front office. That's entirely Andrew Friedman and his team figuring out how do we best put a championship caliber team on the field. Dave Roberts is one of the most heavily scrutinized managers in baseball yes, because of the number of high-profile situations he puts his team in. But to me, the difference this season, and this is just a feel thing. This is not supported by any statistic. This is just me as a baseball fan kind of looking at the last few years and trying to contextualize everything. What I truly believe this year was the difference with Dave Roberts specifically was okay. that <coughs> I don't know if it was a change with the front office and their instructions sure. or a change with how much Dave Roberts decides to not listen to the front office. But this year, I believe that Dave Roberts was fully allowed to manage a baseball mm. game as a baseball manager, not as a talking head for the front office who understands analytics, tells his players about the analytics, and they go out there and perform. To me, this is a Dave Roberts who understood that baseball managers are the ones who are going to lead baseball teams to the championships, not very smart people who understand very complex models, but people who have a, just a natural feel for the game and an understanding of in order to win the World Series, this is what you need. Let's look at the last two, the last two games, uh, the last two clinchers for the Dodgers. Game seven of the NLCS and game six of the World Series. Both of those games were closed out by Julio Arias. Both games were close games. Two-run game, in Game 6 of the World Series, one-run game in Game 7 of the NLCS. In the last few years, would Dave Roberts have gone to Kenley Jansen in those situations because he's the closer, because the analytics say that he is good in these situations, because the analytics say X, Y, and Z about other relievers in the bullpen? Dave Roberts said, you know, Julio's out there. He's throwing the ball well. I'm going to leave him out there. This is his game. That, to me, is better baseball management, and it's less an influence of the front office. And I think it was 2018, after the Red Sox won the World Series, where Kevin Burkhart asked Alex Rodriguez about it. He asked about the influence of a manager. And he's, he, Alex Rodriguez 
I don't like him, but to his credit, he, he gave a very insightful comment. He said, the role of the manager in today's day and age is not to tell the players ex just explicitly, here's this, what the stats are. His job as manager is to interpret the stats, interpret the analytics, and give his players the information they need so that they can perform at the highest level. In addition to that, managers need to be someone who understand the game, who understand the basics of a baseball game and how to win in October. In October, with pitchers, do you go to your closer because he's your best pitcher in the bullpen? Not necessarily. If there's a guy who's on the mound and he's throwing the ball well and he's getting outs, you don't pull him from a game. Hmm. And the reason I have this take, and I think it's different with Dave Roberts this year versus Dave Roberts in years prior, is because we saw what Dave Roberts in years prior is in his opposite number in Kevin Cash. Kevin Cash, to me, is what Dave Roberts was a couple years ago. Hmm. He's that kind of manager who listens explicitly to the front office and says, this is what you need to do. The analytics strongly and overwhelmingly say, this is the case if you do these things. Yes, the Rays constructed a system where they're not going to let teams get momentum. They're not going to let teams go through the order three times to face against the same starting pitcher. Yeah. And yes, it's a model that, to their credit, has been successful. But Blake Snell was pitching out of his goddamn mind in game six. This was his game to stamp his authority and to be the headline and force a game seven. But after five and a third... Two hits, nine strikeouts, and 73 pitches. His manager yanks him because he gives, yeah. off, he gives up another hit. Two hits and five and a third with no yeah. runs, and he gets yanked. Yeah. Is he saving Blake Snell for game eight or game nine? I mean, this is, this is one of the dumbest decisions I think we've ever seen in baseball. And yes, the power of hindsight is, okay, say Snell stays in and he gives up a home run. And Kevin Cash is saying, well, I could have gone to the reliever. That's the kind of the juxtaposition that managers have to deal with on a daily basis. You're damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. And obviously there are some situations where guys like Dave Roberts and Kevin cash, they praise for certain things and they're criticized for others. But I think this year tying back to the original point, Dave Roberts was allowed to manage more heavily than he was in years prior from a pure baseball perspective. Yes, I'm sure he definitely met with the front office and understood all the analytics and relayed that to his players so that they could be as successful as possible. But there's another element of that, which is basically let the guys play. Feel out the game and just help them along. Don't micromanage them, just manage them. And so that, I think, was the difference with Dave Roberts this year, and we do have to give him a lot of credit specifically. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there for sure. Um, so, no, I totally agree with your take in the sense that, um, you know, I, I definitely could sense just throughout the regular season and the postseason, you're absolutely right. Um, feels like Kevin Cash's hands are tied, right? He, he's pretty much, uh, you know, he has to listen to the front office and their decisions, or is Dave Roberts allowed to manage? Now, I don't necessarily think that Dave Roberts always makes the right decisions. I think, to be honest with you, there would have been a lot of questions about Dave Roberts after I think he made two pretty bad calls in Game Four. But in the other hand, on the other hand, um, but then on to your point, it's very hard and, and to the point with Blake Snell. Um, you know, we, we we don't know for sure, so we can't say for sure that Blake Snell, you know, wouldn't have 
struggled or that the outcome would have been different. But but yeah, it, it did feel like a pre to your original point, it feel like a, a predetermined move. They weren't gonna let him face three times through the order. And it's definitely gonna go down as, as one of the greatest what ifs in World Series history. And I gotta say, Owen, oh, you know, we're we're fans, you know. I feel if you're a Tampa fan, you know, you're sitting there against a team that's a way bigger payroll, you're way outmatched on paper, and your margins are so thin, and here you have a chance to really force a game seven and put all the pressure on the Dodgers, and they might have blown their chance. And if we sit back in five, ten years and they never make it again, I mean, this is going to be the the Kevin Cash decision, you know, or whoever it was, you know, defined uh, this race team. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think we do have to contextualize it and we do have to understand that it's one of those things where it, it, this saying applies to every sport. If it works, you're a genius. If it doesn't, you're a loser, you're a failure, you're what What the hell are you doing? The Rays were very much live by the sword, die by the sword. But the one thing that separates good teams from champions is flexibility and adaptability and the ability to change up your approach and still be effective when things aren't going your way. Hmm. Blake Snell was, I mean, that was the best I had ever seen him. And this is someone who is is a a typical Red Sox fan, and they watch the Rays several times a year. So you're going to see Blake Snell several times a year. This is the best he's looked in my eyes. Everything everything about him was crisp. He made made two mistakes in the game, and they they were singles. Nothing beyond that. No, no, absolutely, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, he his stuff. He had four pitches. They he, they were just incredible. Um, and and I mean, you can really, I think, learn all you need to know. I mean, I was listening. You know, I, I watched a lot of the post game shows and like the coverage, and um, lots of the players were talking about how they were so surprised he came out, and even even Mookie Betts himself, right out of his mouth, he said, if he he if he stayed in there, he may very well have pitched a complete game. They just had no answer for him. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, which I think is so bizarre about it too, besides the Nick Anderson thing, right? It's just even if you you're to look at the numbers, I mean, a lot of the numbers, just even the most basic numbers, support the decision for him to stay in. Because I understand, you know, the third tenth of the order, and you know, certain pitches and stuff like that, hitters do better. But like, you know. It's well known that Mookie Betts hadn't gotten hit off Blake Snell all series. He's really, really has bad against lefties all season. You know, you have Corey Seager coming up, who's better against righties than lefties. Um, and, you know, he had, throughout the first two games, the first, you know, that top four, which did most of the damage, had, had struggled against Snell. Mm-hmm. So you figure, at a minimum, you know, leave him in to face those the top four of the order, that inning or next inning. So... Yeah, it's a really, um, you know, we don't know for sure, but um, yeah, it's definitely a, you know, a very questionable decision. Yeah, and I want to briefly, briefly touch on that because the stat line that is going to be thrown around all offseason in every baseball circle, every media outlet that covers baseball, every journalist is yeah. going to throw out there when they talk about game six and the decision to pull Blake Snell, they're yep. going to say one, two, and three for the Dodgers, Betts, Seager, and Turner. 0 for 6 against Snell with 6 strikeouts. Tells you all you need to know. That's all you and need that, to know. And that's and, and what's so crazy about that, Owen, is to put in how context, this Dodgers lineup was historically great. They don't strike out much. 
And they proved throughout the series that other than Blake Snell, they could hit everyone. Much was made about the vaunted Rays, you know, rotation and bullpen. They got to their bullpen. They could hit everyone in the bullpen. The Dodgers bullpen pitched better than Tampa Bay's. Mm-hmm. And anyone they threw out there, they hit. They got runs off every single pitcher, I believe. So in the bullpen, and uh, and so, you know, the Dodgers. It's just it takes stuff that's that great to get them out, and they they had no answer. I mean, they were like striking out. They were chasing pitches. Uh, they got you know two hits. Um, so yeah, it, it uh, he was electric. He was absolutely electric. Yeah, to me the thing, and as a pitcher, this is the one thing I like to circle in on, or I guess a former pitcher and one who likes the the pitching side of the game. The thing I like to circle in on is uh, every pitch is two pitches. But what I mean by that is a fastball is two pitches. It's a fastball that you throw for a strike, and it's a fastball that you throw intentionally for a ball. Hmm. Blake Snell has four pitches. He effectively had eight pitches all night. He could throw every pitch in his arsenal, all four of those. He could throw them for balls, and he could throw them for strikes. He was in complete command of every single pitch. He could spike curveballs when he needed to. He could paint the outside if he needed to. He could paint a fastball if he needed to. He could waste one if he needed to. But oh, yeah. it's it's just still baffling. And the thing the thing that really is more confusing, more so than a decision to pull him, is the the replacement for him. Is to go to yeah. a guy who in his last six appearances had given up an yeah. earned run in each of his starts or each of his appearances. Each of those games he was in, he gave up a run. And Nick yeah. Anderson. And I get it. Anderson was dynamite throughout the regular season. But this is October. You have to and be let, able to adapt. Let me ask you this question, Owen. Um, if if they if they pull Blake Snell in that situation and um, they put in someone else uh, and they don't give up a run, maybe and they pitch pretty well for the rest of the game. Are we talking about this or are we not? No, absolutely not. We're not talking about this because it works. The only reason we're talking about it is because. He was pulled for someone who had been struggling. So there's there's no assessment of the flow and the form of those two guys within a specific series. There's a large data set that supports, yeah, Snell shouldn't face, mm. or any any starting pitcher shouldn't face those hitters a third time through the, through the order because yeah. they're going to make the adjustments and they're going to get hits and they're going to do damage. But yeah. to pull a guy who's pitching as well as a lot of people had ever seen him Hmm. For a guy who had been struggling in the postseason, yeah, that's the that's the hardest part to face. You're, right to face a lineup that had been struggling against the starting pitcher that they pulled, and and oh, absolutely, and and that's the craziest thing. Like you said, he'd, he'd given up a run in six previous games. He'd been their worst pitcher actually in the postseason, mm-hmm. best reliever in baseball mm-hmm. ever since he got there from the Marlins, probably, and the best this season. But in the postseason, and that's the baffling part is right you. You either probably want to put in the lefty to face Betts or Seager, or you want to put in a guy who was hot. You think about uh, Diego Castillo comes to mind, or Ryan Thompson, those mm-hmm. two guys. Yep. I I would, I would, exactly. I would have said throw in Diego Castillo. If they beat Diego Castillo, fine. But yeah. the, the stuff combined with how he had been throwing the ball in the postseason, yeah. if they beat that, they beat that. But they beat a guy who had been struggling, and... Sure. At that level, you can't afford to make mistakes like that, and that's something that if Kevin Cash is ever going to be a World Series winning manager, he he won a couple as a player, but he's, if he's going to win a World Series as a as a manager, that's what he has to change. So, so there's no doubt in your mind it was the wrong decision. Absolutely, 
absolute that. wrong decision. To, you okay. know, if, if they go to Pete Fairbanks, if they go to Diego Castillo, guys who've been throwing the ball well, who've been pitching well in the series and in October in general, mm. if it was one of those guys and one of those guys makes a mistake, you can live with that. Okay. But to, to a guy who had been shaky throughout the entire postseason, that is a little baffling. Like, I get it. The analytics say he's the best. He's your guy. He was throughout the regular season. He was the rock. He was the guy you bring in when there's a fire. He puts out the fire. You get out of dodge. But right. that's just not the case in playoff baseball. So, so here's the here's the only thing which is hard, and we'll we'll, we'll truly never know. So, look, I I completely agree with you, and it and what makes it sad to see, right? Is it was it was obviously a predetermined decision because he was pitching so great, like historically great. Because look, these decisions are hard, and to be fair to Kim Cash, right? There are a lot of times when starters are going deep in the game and they 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 look good, right? But then they just get in trouble. They make a couple of bad pitches. Maybe they walk a guy or two. And, and then all of a sudden they create a jam and they give up a couple runs. But to his point, I mean, his stuff was historically great. You just never felt that it was going to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it, it was just if, – if, if Blake Snell – can get pulled from that, then there is not anyone that can really possibly pitch better than that. So no. that's what's crazy. It was a complete exception to the rule. Yeah, you know? no. In that game, Snell looked like he was going to throw 150 pitches and be totally fine on all of those and still have the command and the, the ability to just dominate sure. a lineup as potent as the Dodgers. And we've talked about it extensively throughout the last couple podcasts the Dodgers lineup is really yeah. really good and I think that, I think the I think the, the other thing that's so no matter how you slice it he was their best option to win he was mm-hmm. just pitching yep. so well. and specifically when you when you talk about his command the way he was commanding the strikes when he's pounding the zone getting them to chase pitches out of the zone he had all four of his pitches work the, the the thing I've learned about the Dodgers is just from watching them all season is they're really not only selective with with the the where the ball is when they swing and the kind of pitches they want. Blake Snell, you can't eliminate anything. You can't you couldn't box him in. Mm-hmm. You know he was completely controlling the outcome. Um, and I thought it's interesting, like you know, just to give an example, right? Like the the two starts that uh, Glass now had, right? Like who he who he has, you know, and I know you're struggling with the command a little bit, but two he's a two pitch pitcher, but he has two of the best pitches in the game. But you know, it, it takes a guy with three, four pitches like working all parts to beat the Dodgers. So yeah, it's a big it's a big it's a big what if. But yeah. um but yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I mean, I just, I was just, I just want to put a bow on your point because I wanted to move on to I want to talk briefly about game four before we move on to uh, some of the storylines, which I know you wanted to talk about. Uh, sure. I'll, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say with Snell, this this stuff, you know, this is obviously more of a intangible assessment. But yeah, he was commanding the fastball, which is yep. obviously for, for a power pitcher like Snell, that's yeah. your number one deal. Con- yep. Command the fastball, be able to throw <laughs> it for balls and strikes wherever you need to throw it. The curveball had a nice tight spin on it. Oh yeah, and the other two pitches, his secondary pitches, I think the slider and the changeup. Yep. He could throw him for balls, and he could throw him for strikes. Yep. He had complete and total command of every single pitch. That's very rare, especially oh, this time of so year. So rare, and yeah, oh yeah. I mean, this was a this was a potentially generational performance through five and a third. 
It oh, I, this I, was one of the greatest things I've ever seen through five and a third innings. I thought, who's going to get a hit off this guy? Like, there's yeah, two and, hits. And just you think about all the famous like moments in the World Series. You think about you know 2001, Randy Johnson, Kurt Schilling, you know Jack Morris, Bob Gibson, um, you know all these famous like this was on track for for one of those. Yeah, Baumgartner in 2014 as well. Baumgartner too. Yeah, great example. Yep. But yeah, we were we were robbed of that for sure and. You know, I think Blake Snell is going to be back on that stage, whether or not it's with Tampa Bay, because I don't think he can be very happy with the front office and with Kevin Cash. I think that's going to sit, that's not going to sit well with him in in the offseason. Mm. And I think he's going to have a good long look at does he want to be with the Rays for the rest of his career? And the answer is probably no. He probably wants to pitch for a big market team like like the Dodgers, like the Yankees, like like mm. his hometown Mariners, maybe. And shout out to shout out to Reese and shout out to yeah, Seattle, yeah. second adopted hometown. Well, I think I think you know I I I think a this is so hard to come back from, right? He he's going to be thinking about that the rest of his career, particularly mm-hmm. if he doesn't win a World Series. Yep. But also, I mean, just look if you're a starting pitcher after that, I mean, this if this is Cy Young guy, you're going to treat like that. Like, what if you're a starting pitcher? I mean, do you want to pitch for a team like that? Nope. I'm not saying analytically most of the time it's going to be correct, but I mean, you you want to be able to pitch more than five, six innings if you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, the, the sure. mentality for starters in the postseason, especially, but in any game, the, the mentality of the starter is I'm the starter, the reliever, and the closer. I'm pitching all, all nine innings. Period. Yeah. That's the mentality of, of all elite starters. And I'm sure, I'm sure Snell had a flood of emotions when he saw Cash walk out of the dugout. It just went, what? Why? What are you doing? No, go back in the dugout. And, you know, for, for, for my money, I kind of wish we had one of those moments that was like we get one of those all-time not-safe-for-work sound bites uh, where you hear the starter just swear really, really loud. Well, you, especially, saw, you saw him mouth it. He did that. mouth it, yeah. But, uh, you know, there have been instances where, where I think that there was a, a video of Mike Messina that surfaced on Twitter that I saw today of him yelling at Joe Torre to go back in the dugout. And Messina oh. ended up finishing the game i don't think it was a playoff game but just still in that scenario that's something that's that i think would have been nice to see as well as to see snell's reaction but i think all those players kind of buy into the mentality that like it's it's not about me it's about we it's about the sum of the individual parts that's kind of the the way the rays have built this organization that's the way they went to the world series in 2008 that's the way they win the world series this year and it's it's live by the sword die by the sword And, and unfortunately for them they uh, they got cut in half by a, a, a team swinging a huge sword. Yeah, and I, I just think it's amazing, right? This is going to go down in history as the Blake Snell game. Yep. You know, you think about games like, as fans, right, we have nicknames for games. Or you say, do you remember this game? And someone's like, oh, that was the game. This happened. And this is going to be forever, you know, the Blake Snell game. No one's going to remember anything about that, you know. Yep. As a, so, yeah. That, that, but it's, I mean, man, I'll just say it one more time. It's really one of the greatest what ifs in in World Series history, and I mean, man, if you're a Tampa fan, oh, that, this has got to be hard to come back from, knowing your chances are few and far between. Yeah, I uh, I know what the whole hard to come back from thing is like uh, as an Atlanta sports fan, and, and subtle plug for uh, the Peach Pit, which launched yesterday, which is a self deprecate self deprecatory self deprecating <laughs> a self deprecating look at Atlanta sports. And a a way to assess holistically what it's like to have a bunch of what ifs in your head forever. 
but yeah. we're not going to talk about that entirely. Uh, I want to get to game four really quickly because I actually yeah. missed this game. And oh. as a baseball fan, I failed. As a regular human being, I had a normal Saturday or whatever normal is during quarantine. Just kind of went about my business and did my thing. Uh, game four turned into an all-time classic, but I want to key in on the last play of the game. And yeah. Willie, you obviously have, you know, I've talked about this a little bit with some of the yeah. managerial decisions, but hmm. game four was a Atlanta-esque collapse by the Dodgers in the last play. They effectively made two and a half errors in the last play. And yeah. in the World Series, if you do that on a single play, when you make effectively two and a half errors, you're going to lose. And especially in that spot where you had the winning run on first, you can't afford to make that mistake. So not only does Chris Taylor bobble the ball, he gets it back in after just about when the first run scores, around from third, Kiermaier, score, uh, Kiermaier mm-hmm. scores from second, you know, ties the game. But then it's the throw from Muncie. If you look at the angle that gets behind Muncie, mm. the throw from him to Will Smith at home is really far offline. It was an awful throw by Muncie. And yeah, it was. And well, the next half error, of course, is Kenley Jansen not backing up the play at home. So I think that there's, oh, yeah. So I think we got to analyze the play from all angles. So, first of all, we got to start with the fact that, um, uh, Bellinger wasn't in center field, and most of the time, Bellinger woke up that day, he wasn't feeling well, he asked Dave Roberts to play DH, so normally that's Cody Bellinger fielding the ball, and Chris Taylor's a great fielder and a great player, but first of all, I mean, maybe he was a little panicked in that situation, Um, but yeah, no, I think it's so interesting, I was watching um, a breakdown, to your point, um, a breakdown of of the play on MLB Network, and uh, I think it was Harold Reynolds. He was actually talking about they played the play in slow motion, and actually Max Muncy sees a Ro- Randy Rosarina slip. And so it's one of these plays where the ball is in. He's about to throw, and it's one of these sees out of the corner of his eyes, and it's like one of those where then he holds on to the ball too long and he kind of tugs it to the left. It's one of those, right, where you, you, you kind of see something and you mess up the throw. So I think that's in part why I messed up the throw. Um and then, like you said, yeah, I mean, you know, Ken uh, Will Smith doesn't see him, and Kenley Jensen doesn't back up the play, and it, that was an all-time epic collapse right there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think Will Smith was also kind of in between two minds there because out of the corner of his eye, as a catcher, you're going to see everything that's going on. But at the corner of his eye, he probably saw a Rosarena and thought, "Oh, yeah, no, I got this." But he's running; I got to get the tag in. Yeah. And oftentimes. The reason that shortstops and second basemen, particularly middle infielders and catchers, will make errors on either plays of the plate or double play attempts is that <laughs> they will try to make a move to tag the runner without catching the ball first. And that's the mm-hmm. one thing you can't do, especially in the World Series in that situation. Just focus on getting the ball first. If he scores and you just get the yeah. tag down late, then fine, they beat you. But that to me was a little bit of catcher being in between two months. I mean, Will Smith's a young player and mm. he's a world champion now, but that's one thing that he'll potentially look back on and think, okay, I could have done that better. But ultimately at the end of the day, we didn't get hurt by it. But as a catcher defensively, that's some of the things he can do better. I think Yadi Molina would be someone, I mean, he's obviously mm. one of the greatest defensive catchers of all time, if not the greatest defensive catcher yeah. of all time. But I think if you see Molina, Molina's focus is not so much getting the tag down in time. 
It's more so getting the ball and then getting the tag as soon as possible. Now, this is me maybe nitpicking a little bit. And the other bit, of course, is is Kenley Jansen. What is he doing? Not backing the play up at home yeah. as any baseball player, any infielder, or just any player in general. You're taught to back up two bases ahead of the lead runner. And the ball's right there. Like exactly. So yeah. if Kenley Jansen's behind home, maybe this is Dodgers in five. Who knows? And, and honestly, yeah, no, uh, you made a couple of interesting points. I mean, to your first point, um, I do wonder if, if, if Barnes is in the game, if that happens. Um, just in general, I actually agree with your point. I, I don't think you're nitpicking. Um, and actually, you, you kind of, of, of noticed this with the way that Barnes, he never looks panicked when plays are at home. He secures the ball, and he's always kind of in a good position. Um, and he's very alert and it, it did look like maybe nerves got to him, but Will Smith did kind of panic. He was in such a rush to, to get the tag. Right. And, and I think, I mean, I don't know, I think a great example, there's lots of plays at the plate from ground balls and stuff that I've noticed with Barnes, but even just, I think a great example of that even is just, um, uh, when Margot tries to steal home in game five, um, mm-hmm. that was a bang, bang play at the plate. Yeah. Uh, if you, just look at slow-mo. You don't realize how close that is. But he's in perfect position. He makes sure he secures the ball, drops the tag, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I, absolutely. I think, you know, it was and, – and and then to the point about Kenley Jansen, right? Um, I mean, that's a play he probably does 99% of the time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a tough one. That's yeah, tough one. I don't know if it was something like he, he saw everything in front of him and he thought, okay, yeah, no, that – they got this. They're going to get the guy out at home. We're going to go to extras. You know, I blew a save. I'm kind of mad at myself for giving up this hit. It could be a lot of things. You know, closers are different animals entirely. I know you've talked about relievers a bit on this show as as being uh, unique. We'll put it that way. But, you know, I think ultimately we have to look at this uh, holistically and understand that, you know, game four was an all-time classic and the Dodgers barely lost, but it was inconsequential as far as the rest of the series is concerned. So at the end of the day, you can nitpick all you want, but I think we got a really good series. We got good baseball. Uh, and that's, that's really for, for my money, particularly that's all you can ask for is just give me a good series. Yeah. And I just want to say too, I mean, to that point, that game four was an instant classic. Um, you know, to have Brett Phillips, a guy like a 200 career hitter, get it. And to Dodgers credit. I mean, those are the kind of games when you look at the world series, there are these gut-wrenching losses and to come back from that to win is just incredible and yeah the last three games i think really lived up to the bill and in different ways yeah and you know ultimately i think that it it represents everything this team is about it's resilience it's not backing down in the face of adversity it's coming back and you know as as the kind of soccer term is used a lot it's just going again we yeah. go again. That's that's been that I think has been the Dodgers mentality since really 2017, uh, maybe even 2016 before that Dodger or Dave Roberts first year. So, yeah, you know, where does this team go from here? I think they stay at the top for a while. It's going to be a tough team, a tough task to beat them. Now, there's a lot of questions in the offseason about yeah. free agency, but ultimately the Dodgers have the financial flexibility and mm. the organizational depth to go out and make any sort of move they want to. I mean, you think of the moves they've made in the last few years alone. They traded for Manny Machado two years ago. 
They yeah. traded for who did they trade for last year? Uh, um, I'm trying to remember who they traded for last year, but they made a big splash in the offseason as well. Uh, they traded for David Freeze as well in 2018, tried to get oh. some of that postseason magic. They traded for they had the big trade in 2012, the kind of salary dump, but they, you know, yeah. they have a history of going out and making a big move at the deadline each of the last few years. Yeah, and so that's right. That's right. So you know, the Dodgers aren't going anywhere. I, I you know. If there's any Giants fans listening to this podcast, I'm sorry, but your your arch rivals are, are going to stay at the top for quite a while. Yeah, and, and just to that to that point, um, I, I just just want to mention a few things or real, something real quick, which is that um, it's going to be really interesting to see what the Dodgers do in the offseason because obviously, look, they have the organizational uh, depth. Um, I mean, uh, they have the organizational you know player development and um, resources to do things, but. You know, this Dodgers team, they finally felt like used their depth in the right way. And it's going to be really interesting because um, when I made this prediction about the Yankees, you know, not winning the World Series in the next decade, and, you know, maybe that's going to turn out to be foolish, in part is because their roster is not as um, versatile as the Dodgers, and it's a little top-heavy. And the Dodgers have their seven free agents— Except for Justin Turner, there are six role players, and you just wonder: Are they going to choose to spend their monies on the big names, and whether it's new guys or the or when their big guys come to free agency, or are they going to try to retain the role players and the depth they have that are not as expensive? You know, the guys that are free agents: Jack Peterson, uh, Kike Hernandez, Blake Trinan, um, Justin Turner. Justin Turner. And, yeah, just uh, Kenley Jansen as well. I think is a free agent this year. Is okay. I think so, yeah. Okay. So Maybe he has so yeah. Year's contract, but All right. So so yeah, they have some interesting decisions to make for sure. Yeah. But ultimately, if you're a Dodgers fan, you cannot be worried about the state of this team. Even if they don't win the World Series next year, they're going to be contenders for sure. Yeah. You know, barring injuries and other miscellaneous setbacks that you can't really predict in sports, but you know, all things equal. And of course, we don't live in a bubble. These things can happen. <laughs> Uh, it it very well could be the chance that the Dodgers are the best team again next year. It very well could be, and the year after that as well. It just depends on the the kind of uncontrollables in in baseball. But as far as things that they have at their disposal, that they just have the most firepower in terms of money, organizational depth, and current mm-hmm. roster strength. They have also, the complete package yeah. right now. And also, not to labor on, I'm sorry, but but. I just want to make a quick point, which is that I understand that the Blake Snell decision wasn't good, but to your point, the Dodgers, um, you know, Andrew Friedman's, a, you know, one of, there's one of the better GMs in in baseball, and um, let's not get too carried away. I, you know, I, I, I'm rolling my eyes when a lot of, you know, ex-players on Twitter or on TV or people in the media are talking about you know, analytics is too much. Look, the business world and the world of sports and analytics is going nowhere. It shouldn't go anywhere. It just means that on average, you're right. And there are certain instances where maybe, you know, you don't have to follow the information, but some of the backlash is going way too far. Mm -hmm. I mean, after all, these are two teams that exemplify why analytics are good. So Mm -hmm. let's not, let's not, Go, let's not say that analytics was the cause of the, no. you know, it was, it was just a bad decision. Yeah, one it, bad. Was, it was human error by 
yes. one player, by one person that yes. really gave analytics a bad name. And I go back to this point from the 2018 World Series, and I know this is a sore subject for the Dodgers, sure. but you know they won the World Series. I'm not, I don't, I don't care about their feelings right now. They're, they're feeling great. Alex Cora was praised by the entire uh, Fox Sports postgame uh, crew. So obviously David Ortiz and Alex Rodriguez, but also Frank Thomas, Dontrell Willis, and even Kevin Burkhardt, I think, had he gave some yeah. props. What Alex Cora did as manager of that team was he understood the importance of analytics. He understood what everything means. But what he decided to tell his players is not everything the front office gave him. He decided that to look at only the important things, the things that are going to help his guys perform to the best of their abilities. Hmm. Yes, you can talk about the cheating scandal, but ultimately, when you look at that 2018 Red Sox team, as, as we did last week, it is one of the best teams we've seen in recent memory, yep. not hmm. because they have all the superstars, but because they got every bit they could out of every single player. They yeah. got every ounce of talent out of Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts had his MVP season. Mm. J.D. Martinez was phenomenal all year at the plate. Mitch Moreland, clutch hits when he needed to, and gold glove first base. Jackie Bradley Jr., gold glove, platinum glove defense in center field, <laughs> and yeah. more than competent hitting at times. The bullpen, mixed and matched, but what Cora did was he wasn't afraid to go into a starting rotation and bring out the big guns to pitch one or two innings at the end of games with guys who throw 100 miles an hour. Nathan Evaldi hitting 102. Yeah. Chris Sale hitting 100. David Price being filthy, both as a starter and a reliever. And ultimately, it's not down to the analytics people. It's down to the person who tells that to the team. And who is the bridge between the front office and the roster? It's the manager. The manager. And this is not mm -hmm. on the analytics people. It's on mm -hmm. the guy who decides to tell the mm -hmm. players what they need to do. I completely it's agree. the manager. It's not I analytics. Completely agree. And I Obviously, you and I never played the game at a high level, so this is our perspective. But as a fan, you you can't deny the fact that analytics are part of every sport now. Analytics are used in soccer. What? You would not think that. Yeah, I mean, the Liverpool the sport, Billy Bean. You see that? Exactly, yeah. Billy Bean. Exactly. So, so yeah. you, you can't hope to sit there and say analytics are ruining sports. It should be about yeah. feel. It should be about yeah. players just playing. I'll call Alex Rodriguez for a yeah, second. It's it's part of it's part he, of every industry. He, he he said he's like guys with computers are in the game. Well, okay, if you buy the Mets, go try running it with old fashioned scouts. Let's see how well you that, Exactly. That, exactly. If you <laughs> so, have a team that doesn't have the financial flexibility to go out and just buy players left and right, would the Oakland A's be as successful as they were as they are right now in terms of getting the getting back to the playoffs with the payroll they have? Would the Rays mm -hmm. have been able to do what they do to compete with the New York Yankees and the Boston sure. Red Sox? No, of but, course not. But here's, but here's and, and just to, to, to tie it all together and to put a little uh, knot on it, uh, Billy Bean said a quote, a famous quote once, which he, which he said, which is, my stuff works in the regular season. In the postseason, it doesn't because there's too small of a sample size. So that's where you absolutely, it's about the person taking the information and applying it. And postseason, where you don't have as much margin for error, you sometimes have to marry the marry the two together. Yep. It and can't be strictly one way or the other. Right, right. And the teams that have managers who do that the best are the teams that are going to win the World Series. Yep. Hmm. I wonder in two of the last three years if we've had managers who rely on analytics but don't let that dictate their entire strategy. Let me see. Uh, Dave Roberts. Yeah. Alex Cora. 
Even yeah. AJ Hinch the year before, but the Astros are the Astros. We're not going to give them any. We're not going to give them any no, proper we'll respect look. on this show. But, well, you know, they're an yeah. analytics team. We'll give them. We'll, we'll acknowledge that. I'm not going to give them that. We'll acknowledge that. But mm-hmm. uh, Willie, before we move on to soccer, you had an idea that you texted me a couple days ago where you wanted to talk about some of the legacies and some of the the fun stories behind a few of the Dodgers. And mm-hmm. this is not just their players, but any any member of the Los Angeles Dodgers. So I'll let you kind of run with it. I'll chime in when necessary, but this is your uh, your time to shine. So uh, what do you got for us? <laughs> okay, yeah. So obviously, you know, we could have spent all day doing this. You know, the, like I said before, this Dodgers team has been on a really long run ever since 2006. And there are lots of beautiful stories from star players to great young players to lots of cast-offs. Um, but given that the, the, this story is really about the Dodgers overcoming their demons, I, I chose to pick out you know, five of the figures with the Dodgers that have been there for the longest time and talk about kind of their time with the Dodgers and how and, and kind of what this World Series means for them and their legacy. And obviously there's lots of beautiful stories that we could have chosen from. Lots of cast-offs, but um, I, I just want to choose five. So, um, so the first first I wanted to start with is, uh, and I'm just going to name the five uh, five people one at a time. And Owen, I want you to just say what what you what you think, and then I'll I'll just follow up with what you said. So let's before we go, let, let's start with Dave Roberts. Let's start with the manager, Red Sox legend Dave Roberts. <laughs> Sorry, I yeah. had to throw that in there. <laughs> but yes, uh, elite manager, top baseball guy, just top guy in general. Highly recommended. Good dude. Okay. I mean, that's so can't go any further than that, really. So, so to me, it's very interesting. To me, out of these five players, some of the legacies are great, and some of them were complicated. To me, Dave Roberts, I have to be honest, has a really complicated legacy, and lo- I'm very glad he's a, a good manager, a great guy, but. Dave Roberts' legacy is very mixed. And to be honest, I really think he got bailed out in, in this World Series. And so, obviously, Dave Roberts is one of the most criticized managers uh, in, in all of sports, uh, maybe baseball. And, and But what's so interesting about Dave Roberts is that, obviously, look, it's so easy to just nitpick decisions in the bullpen and say, should you have brought in this guy or that guy, right? But, um, and there's lots of the things that go into those decisions, you know, how players are performing against that player or how their pitches match up. But, but there have been a few really high profile decisions Dave Roberts have made, which he's gotten criticized for. And so I just want to talk about them and what it means. So, um, so I'll just start off with, with this World Series. And Dave Roberts' decision to, I'll, Look, I think that the Pedro Baez decision to pitch him against Brendan Lau was a really poor one. But to stick with Kenley Jansen in the ninth inning of Tampa Bay, I honestly think, unfair as it is, if, if Dodgers lose this World Series, Dave Roberts is out of a job. And so that shows how, how great a profession is. So to me, when I look back at the World Series, when I look back at... Dave Roberts' legacy, he's a very well-liked person, very smart, knows the game, um, great communicator, and he's absolutely ball of the managers, but he's, there have been some really high-profile decisions. You talk about Game 4 
pitching Baez against Brandon Lau uh, and bringing Kenley Jansen. Think about last year choosing to bring Clayton Kershaw for two batters and then pitch um, Joe Kelly two innings. Uh, when you think about, um, you know, think he's been criticized even for, for pulling Rich Hill a couple games in the 2017-2018 in World Series. Um, so to me, Dave Roberts, the, the, he really is going to, his legacy is all over this group because it's so interesting because in the ways about what made this team so great and how they've taken on the personality of this manager and the depth and the the analytics and the great baseball clubhouse chemistry, he's also epitomized with some of his questionable decisions in the postseason. So I think that's an interesting. Sorry, that was a long rant, but no, no, no. I think you bring up a lot of valid points, and this is the one thing that managers obviously have to deal with as part of the job is they live in this perpetual state of damned if you do, damned if you don't. If mm. a certain decision to substitute a player, bring in a reliever, works, then you get praised for it. If yeah. it backfires, then you get criticized, and. I think more often than not, he's one of those managers who puts the utmost belief into his players that they are going to succeed and he's going to put them in those positions to succeed. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always work and it has backfired in the years past, but ultimately mm -hmm. I think this year was the year that he finally kind of got out of his own way sure. and had more of a feel and less of an emphasis on what he is told to do by the front office. Now that's obviously, again, like I've said, just a feel thing, but mm -hmm. that's what the that's what it resembled to me is, is a more freely managing David, Ro Dave Roberts. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And I think you brought up a couple good examples of Urias getting a, a nine, uh, nine out and a seven out save, you know? Um, and, and just, he, he trusted his players a lot more, but he, he, he also made some really good decisions. He had a really good feel of, of things too, you know, like, Pulling Clayton Kershaw in Game Five—that was probably a good decision. Looking back on it, a lot of people thought he should have stayed in the game. So I think he, absolutely, I think he's really matured, and I think that he pushed all the right buttons when it mattered. So yeah, absolutely. But it's so interesting because you ask—we talk about Kevin Cash, but Dave Roberts, as well as anyone, probably knows what it feels like to be criticized for yep. his management. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I, I should also just say that you know. Um, Gabe Kapler was supposed to be the manager of this team. Um, and who knows where the Dodgers are without Dave Roberts because he's really tied the clubhouse together, you know, very yep. well. Yep. Series. yep, totally agree. Sure. So the next player uh, I want to talk about uh, is uh, Justin Turner. Um, on what, what do you think about Justin Turner's career and, and what this means for his legacy? Well, I think he he writes himself into the, the Dodger history book as one of the kind of out-of-left-field stars for this team. And mm -hmm. people are going to look back on, on Justin Turner's career a few years from now and go, yeah, he was a very, very important player for that Dodgers team, not only as a quote-unquote clubhouse guy, but just generally as someone who went out onto the field and performed. I think he had, what, this, the most most hits or second most hits of any Dodger in the postseason? I think second. I think second. Yeah. And, and most home runs. Most home most. runs. Yep. Playing very solid defensive third base. He's not a gold glove third, space, third baseman, but good. he's a very, very good defender. Yeah, I think underrated in a lot of in a lot of circumstances. Oh yeah, he's a very solid glove. Not yeah. the most mobile, but right. you know, doesn't make mistakes and ground balls. He's a pretty good arm. Yeah, so. he's, he's, he's reliable. 
he's very not, he's very that's rarely gonna gonna beat himself and that's something yeah. that as as a veteran as someone who's been in the league a long time and kind of a journeyman turned into a, a star for one team that's kind of the one thing you have to have and he definitely has it in abundant supply and obviously he's one of the most beloved guys in the clubhouse too he's just by the way he's he goes about his business the way he adds something to the team adds some personality to the team uh, I think that's that's something specific and I, I do want to briefly touch on Justin Turner uh, you know talk about him a little later when we get to to hot takes but okay. I'll save that for later okay sure yeah no to me um I think there's some really interesting parts so um so first of all absolutely um I think that well actually you know what I want to uh well okay I'll start with the Dodgers part you know I think that he absolutely he he really epitome. He's really the glue guy in the locker room. He's one of the most well-respected guys, and he's really the the guy that's that's led this team together. And to me, this what this legacy means for what this World Series means for him is it really brings attention to just how great a player he's been for the Dodgers. I mean, he's been he's had I think three All Star appearances for the Dodgers. Twenty seventeen had the highest WAR of any player. Um, but really, since 2014, been an absolutely great player. Uh, he hits. He's hitting almost 300 in his career for the postseason. So he's consistently showed up. He's been probably the most consistent postseason performer, even more than Jock Peterson, um, for the Dodgers. And it's also just a beautiful story in the sense that, like I talked about, there's there's been a lot of castoffs on the Dodgers. You think about Kike Hernandez, Chris Taylor, but you know Justin Turner um, signed a minor league contract. For the Dodgers when he came over in, in, in 2014. This is a guy who was not a bad hitter, but he had no power. He, he had very little power when he played for the Mets. And I remember him. And, you know, he was entering his, he was 28 when he, when he came over to the Dodgers. And um, I don't know whether it was analytics, whether it was a change of scenery, but, you know, what amazing it is to see him turn his career around because you know, he very easily could have folded. So I, I think it's a really beautiful story in that in that way too. Yeah. No, I think I think he's gonna be remembered as one of the most important cogs in the machine that is the Los Angeles Dodgers as as they are right now. Mm. And, you know, it's it's kind of it goes back to the way that they've established this culture of not only developing players, but finding these gems, yeah. these diamonds in the rough, basically. And Basic and and putting them in the best possible positions to succeed, and allowing them to succeed, and and the re- the result is obviously now a World Series champion, but one of the most consistent performers for the Dodgers in the last few years. Yeah, he's going to firmly go down in in Dodgers history, and it he was huge this World Series. He hit I think three twenty. I looked it up earlier, and um, just goes to show that the first part of your career doesn't define you. Yep, you know, and and. He will, like I said, he he's break broken a lot of Dodgers records. He's truly a Dodgers legend now. Yep, absolutely, so. absolutely. Yeah. All right, so on to the third. We'll save the I think the best two for last. Um, so uh, Owen, um, what are your thoughts on uh, Jock Peterson? Jock, a guy also being here, one of the longest tenured Dodgers, being here since 2014, uh, 2015 actually, 2015. Yeah. So Jock Peterson to me is one of those guys who was very, very highly touted when he first came up. I mean, it was one of those things where people around the Dodgers, if you talk to anyone who is close to the team, they go, yeah, no, this guy's going to be a stud. 
And it hasn't really panned out that he's the kind of five-tool superstar that people mm -hmm. may have thought he was. But he still ended up being one of the most important pieces of this team because he's a guy who it doesn't matter if he doesn't have a rhythm as far as playing time. You can kind of just slot him in any day of the week as a platoon player and he'll still produce. Yeah, he'll strike out a lot, but he's going to hit a lot of home runs. He's going to get a lot of clutch hits. And that's kind of been his entire existence with the Dodgers. It's clutch hits in the postseason and it's being part of a very solid platoon in the outfield when necessary. And... That's something yeah. you really can't overlook if you're mm -hmm. hoping to construct a world championship caliber team. Yep. I, I, absolutely. Um, he, he, um, he, he really, they, they, they call him Jocktober for a reason. Um, and you're absolutely right. It's amazing. Right. And, and, and look at the end of the day, all people, all fans and really organizations probably care about its championships. Right. And we talk about how important role players are to the team. And I just think that Jock Peterson, I think he's almost like a, a career 300 postseason hitter. Um, he's he's one of the, the, the most important role players who season for six years now has shown up. In, in the eight division titles, he's been on, on six of those teams, and he's shown up every single postseason. And like you said, doing it with, with very little play time, which can't be overestimated. And more specifically... On um, the three World Series, he's shown up in a big way, and so, and then when you look at the their their clinching World Series, big RBI in Game Five, um, he was big in Game Four, but they lost. Um, so yeah, I think that for a guy who is about to be traded, and like you said, on this is a guy who had really high. Um, potential. Uh, I remember buying his rookie card, being really excited, uh, going to the Beverly Hills card shop on uh, Robertson Boulevard and buying his rookie card. Nice, nice. Cost me actually like fifty bucks, seriously. <laughs> and um, and uh, yeah, but and he's been very mediocre. You know, okay fielder, not probably below average actually, and um, just really power or nothing. But in the three World Series that they've played, he has been up there with Justin Turner for their best hitter. So I, I wanted to give him a shout-out and a guy who's been a big part of, of the six, one of the longest tenure Dodgers. Yep, and I, I do want to add this little shout-out uh, because in 2016, when I was a senior at Occidental, uh, part of our broadcasting club, the kind of group that I oversaw that yeah. did all of the play-by-play -play broadcasts for Occidental sports teams, mainly uh, soccer yeah. and football, or soccer, sorry, soccer and baseball, Mm -hmm. uh, Jock Peterson was kind enough to uh, initially agree to come to one of our fundraisers, uh, but he actually couldn't make it last minute because of a family request. But he did promise that our prize for our winner of our home run derby fundraiser was a signed Jock Peterson jersey. And he lived up to it. And he gave us a signed, a signed jersey to give away. How did you? How did you guys get in touch with him? That's so incredible. we actually, we actually uh, had one of his close family friends as one of our, one of our club members, and he. I think he was only at the school for a semester <laughs> or two. I think he ended up transferring to Chapman, but in the semester we had him, he was, uh, you know, he had the connection, and we were able to get in touch with Jock Peterson and get that uh, ability to have potentially a professional baseball player come to campus. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't work out that way, but 
he was nice enough to give us a jersey. And that's, you know, you got to give him major props for that. He's a good dude. That's, oh, yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So if, the oh. Do- if, he is, if he doesn't play another game in a Dodger uniform, he's he's got to go down as one of the one of the guys that will always be remembered as part of this juggernaut of a team. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and look, that's what sports are about, right? It's just like we remember those key key guys who made key moments. You know, yep. we'll remember him and we'll remember Kike Hernandez for yep. what he, you know. So absolutely. Those guys, those role players who make big plays will go down. Um, and Kike is definitely, he's not going to get a shout out, but he definitely deserves a segment in this, but we want to save it to five. Yeah, All right, I, guess, um, I guess briefly to, to touch on that, um, yeah. on, on Kike. Uh, Braves fans are going to remember Kike oh, from this postseason, but not, not in a good way. No, having uh, a game tying no doubter off the. You know, did you hear what he said in the post game? He said, when he hit that home run off of Will Smith, um, he said, "I just wanted to. I thought this might be my last at bat as a Dodger, so I want to make it count." Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, he he certainly made it count. Yes, he did. He yeah, did. he saved them. He saved them. Yep. He saved them. Yeah. All right, Alan. So uh, moving on to four or five. Um, so a a lightning rod for Dodger fans of late. That's uh, Kenley Jansen. So how do you reflect on his Dodger legacy, uh, particularly as we don't know how much longer he'll be a Dodger? Honestly. Right. Honestly, you have to give Kenley props because he yeah. is. Isn't he the all-time saves leader now for the Dodgers? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Henley Jansen is one of the most important pieces of this team. Every championship team needs at least one pitcher who, it doesn't have to be every year of his career, every year he's with the team, but at some point has to be the guy who, if you're in a one-run game in the ninth inning, and you need a win. You need to win a big game in September. You need to win a big game in July, right into the All-Star break. You need to have momentum right out of the gates in the All-Star break. Or you need to win a huge game in the World Series. You need to close it out. One, two, three in the ninth. Kenley Jansen, by and large, has been that guy for the Dodgers. Yeah. The last couple of years have not been the case, whether it's a decline in velocity yeah. or a loss of command. Uh, he actually had COVID this year, and some of the side effects are, you know, he's talked about them still kind of lingering. So that affects his ability to perform as the same kind of pitcher. But ultimately, for someone who was a converted catcher, to turn into the all-time saves leader for an organization. And actually, funny enough, I actually think that he he actually caught Clayton Kershaw. He talked about this mm-hmm. in the Arizona Fall League yep. in 2006 when he was drafted. Yep. Funny so, is that. So, you know, Kenley is obviously going to get a lot of flack for, and, and rightly so yeah. in certain situations, for blowing big saves. Yeah. And, you know, there's always a weird thing about closers in non-save situations, but we can talk, that, talk about that more, uh, obviously, next season. But you have to respect what he brought to this organization, even mm. if the production wasn't consistent. Just to have the presence of someone who you know has the capability of being a one, two, three, slam the door shut closer. Mm-hmm. So I get it. I get the flack. And any team with any established closer is going to have the same view of their closer if they are in the mold of Kenley Jansen. But yeah, ultimately, yeah. you do have to respect what he brought to the team. So I'm Kenley Jensen's a really good guy, and 
so to me, it's it's so interesting. Um, to to your right, you have to respect him because Kenley Jansen has been a Dodger. You know, I think I'm not sure if he made it to the MLB the same exact year. I think maybe the year after Kershaw, but he's been there. And he's been really, really good. I mean, for the better part of seven, eight years, he was a very good pitcher. Three, four years, I mean, he had 41 saves one year, I know. And he had, I mean, he was, you know, he's a multiple-time all-star. One of the best closers um, in World Series. And for more than anything, I'm just happy that he's going to get the respect it deserves because, look, Kenley's had his, his share of struggles. And I'm, I just have to be honest, um... The Dodgers have covered up Kenley Jansen. He hasn't done anything, and I know this is harsh, but it's the truth. You know, Kenley Jansen, I still think he actually holds the record for most blown saves in the World Series. Um, he blew two saves, I think, against the Astros in 2017. Uh, he coughed up two leads against the Red Sox in the World Series. Uh, one of them ended up winning in Game 3, but he also coughed up in Game 4. And then also in this series, and so... You know, he's not the same pitcher he once was. But I'm, and also, I, I can't forget um, a 29th, you know, last year against the Nationals, right? Uh, at the end of the game, too. Um, so, or I think game four. Um, so, bottom line is, um, I'm happy that he gets the respect because he's a great example of if he hadn't come through, his legacy would have been completely different. Yep, absolutely. No, and that's that's something that you do have to mention as well, is you have to take the good with the bad with Kenley Jansen. But on the whole, you can't really fault someone who has been an established presence at the back end of the bullpen for as long as he has. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of the day, Dodgers fans, you have to give your respect and the credit where it is due to Kenley Jansen. Yes, they protected him, but that's what at some points certain teams have to do with their players who... At one point, we're unhittable, pitcher specifically. But at one at one point, they're unhittable. At another point, they can't throw strikes, and you have to be able to protect them when there is that sort of inconsistency. And that actually does apply to, I'm sure, the last player on your list. I have a feeling I know who it is. Yeah, I think you do. I think we all know who it is. Yeah. No, it does. All right, Owen. So uh, the last one, probably the most controversial. I mean, maybe ever, lightning rod of a player in terms of the regular season, postseason uh, talk, is uh, Clayton Kershaw. So what are your, take, your, take it away. What are your thoughts so, on Clayton? Let's get this out of the way before I get into any of the potential criticisms of Clayton Kershaw. Clayton Kershaw is the first ballot Hall of Famer, undisputed. First ballot. Mm -hmm. No question about it. He is mm -hmm. the best pitcher of this generation, and I don't think it's close. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, when he gets the ball, you better hope he makes a lot of mistakes because he's he's when he's on, he's unhittable. Mm -hmm. He hasn't always been on in the postseason, and that's always the criticism of him. But here's here's the issue with Kershaw and people's assessment of Kershaw. Clayton yeah. Kershaw is a one through sixth inning postseason pitcher. What I mean by that is innings one through six, yeah. he's the same old Clayton Kershaw. <laughs> it's when you get into the seventh inning and later. That's when the cracks start to show. And that's yep. when, sure. you know, that's the part of the game where the last three innings is when everyone starts to kind of tighten up a little bit, especially in October, because every game means so much more. 
-hmm. And for a guy with literally the weight of an entire franchise on his shoulders, as it has been for basically, you know, he's been the franchise player for how long now? I mean, since 2000, what, 2008? However long he's been with the Dodgers? Uh, His first year was 2008. Yeah. Uh, He's been... Remember when he came up, it was like, yeah, this this is the guy. And then he started to establish himself in the league. Yeah, no, this is this is the guy for the Dodgers. And that pressure can weigh on you more than I think a lot of people are giving him credit for. That said, the difference this year it, with the Dodgers is they had enough of a pitching staff, not just bullpen and rotation, but enough of a aggregate pitching staff to protect him. And to say, you don't need to go out there and give us seven shutout innings. You don't need to. Or on short rest or yeah, anything Yeah, exactly. Like. You can give us four shutout yeah. innings, five shutout innings. Six would be great, but six and two runs is still a quality start. That's, by definition, a quality start. What is it? Six innings and two runs is a quality start? Whatever yeah. the statistical no, definition is these days. But ultimately, yeah. the way the Dodgers approached Clayton Kershaw this year, they understood he's still one of the best. Yeah. He's the best of this generation, for sure. Maybe one mm-hmm. of the best of all time. Yeah. But you can't go without protecting players like that because you can't expect someone who's so good all the time to continue that in the pressure cooker that is the postseason. And so with mm. Clayton Kershaw, there's this understanding that if you take a lot of weight off his shoulders, if you let the rest of the team carry the burden, mm. it's not as heavy, and he's going to perform much better. And what do we see this postseason? The exact same thing. There were cracks of it in, what was it, game five against Atlanta? Game- or well, no, four. four. Game four against Atlanta. But ultimately, he bend, but didn't, you know, he bended, but didn't break. That was another example, too. His his uh, his four runs, I think, came in, what was it, the fifth or the sixth inning? That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a great example. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what, what do you think, that being said, uh, what do you think that these two, this postseason does for his, and specifically this two wins in the World Series, does that change? that narrative at all to you? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it it gives us the opportunity to see a situation where the ace is not expected to carry a team on the level that he was. And I want to use this example of moving the goalposts. Clayton Kershaw is one of those examples in sports where very rarely do you see talking heads and former players talk about the importance of you know, a certain player and, oh, they're not showing up. They're not doing well enough. As members of sports media and people who are interested in sports, as fans, we tend to move the goalpost further and further when you have players like Clayton Kershaw, LeBron James, Lionel Messi, and Tiger Woods because they set the bar so high to begin with that that becomes their measuring stick where everyone else's measuring stick is five paces behind that. So it's one of those situations where Clayton Kershaw is so good that we expect so much of him. And the expectation is a lot higher than it should be because he's just another guy. He's very good at what he does, but ultimately he's just another player. He's one player. He's not going to be able to do the whole thing. Same thing happens to LeBron James. Same thing with Messi. Same thing with Ronaldo. The, The standards have been set so high that we tend to move the goalposts for them so that if they don't match up to the very top of the standard that they create, they're considered a failure. Failure for them so, is a so, career for other people. So, so here, here's the really interesting. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. So, but here's the interesting thing about it, though. 
The interesting thing about it, though, and this as a great person is so happy, is because I it is absolutely true that Clayton Kershaw, you know, given I mean since the 1920s, whenever the dead ball era ended, apparently he has the lowest ERA ever after a certain qualifying. So you can very easily make an argument he's the best pitcher ever. Um, but that being said, while we've definitely created an unfair standard for him, I mean, and he hasn't been nearly as bad as people say. We don't judge other players like this. He's pitched a lot of good postseason games. The unfortunate part is that, you know, and you're absolutely right. The managers have left him in too long. So that's part that's really unfortunate. And But um, he, he really had struggled in moments. The team really needed him in the most. And that's why this World Series was so special. Game one and game five, the team absolutely needed him, particularly in game five. After that, gave up game four and he came through. And just to illustrate that point, Owen, I picked out, and I have the numbers right in front of me, I picked out five games in the past which were defining Dodgers postseason games in which he struggled. Just to like reaffirm the point. So go back to 2013. His, one of his, his first Cy Young year. Okay, Closeout game. Uh, if you remember, uh, NLCS against the Cardinals. I have it right here. Um, four innings, seven runs. That's really kind of what started his, his postseason struggles. That 2013 St. Louis. Um. Fast forward, um, and, you know, there were some some starts in between, but, you know, none that really – but I'm picking the five that stand out the most of the struggles to me. Uh, 2016, closeout game against the Cubs, the year the Cubs win the World Series. Um, five innings, uh, four earned runs, five runs total, um, and they lose that game 5-0, so – I remember that game. I remember watching it. The Dodgers kind of were deflated. Um, fast forward to now, I really want to excuse this one, but I just have to say it. 2017 World Series Game Five against Houston, six runs, four and two thirds innings. Um, so I, we can we can kind of throw that one. You can throw away because it it that game. What was it? Forty something breaking balls and not, not a single swing and miss by the Astros because okay. they literally knew it was coming. Yeah. So oh, okay. you kind of have to take that one with a grain of salt. All right. So, um, okay, I mean, not so to, I mean, throw that I, one. no, you're right. Throw that one out there. Yeah, yeah. no, but you're, but the point still remains. I think you bring up a lot of really good points in that regard. That it's just one of those things that you have to acknowledge in addition to this year and how he was able to get past a lot of that this year. Yeah. And that when his team needed him the most, he performed. And, and, and so, yeah, it, it really saved his legacy because, like I said, look, part of it is completely fair when it comes to his overall context. But part of what is fair is the fact that it doesn't matter who it is. Like, he just hasn't pitched well in a lot of postseason games, too. Mm-hmm. Now, his numbers are completely inflated and we judge them too high. But he has had bad starts in critical yeah. points. So to have two huge starts in the World Series... Right. Changes everything. It changes the narrative, in my personal opinion, and it puts him from potential first ballot Hall of Famer to undisputed first ballot Hall of Famer. Oh, yeah. I got it done. He has a ring. He's in the Hall of Fame. No questions asked. Uh, Before we move on, I want to briefly bring up a 
kind of foil for the point you're making about Clayton Kershaw. So the interesting thing is Kershaw is not the only pitcher, and he will never be the only pitcher or player in this regard, who has a, a much lower set of basic stats in the postseason than the regular season. It's just the pressure is different, and pressure affects certain players more than it does others. It's it's not a some, it's yeah. an intangible. It's not something mm-hmm. you can measure. It just is what it is. But the pitcher with the highest differential between postseason ERA and regular season ERA, as in postseason, is higher. Verlander is his teammate, David Price. David Price. David Price has about a one and a half or one point three five differential between his regular season ERA and his postseason ERA. Well, it, it, to be fair, it it was like that for him. It was even. I mean, it still actually is. It's, it's right now. His Clayton Kershaw, I want to say he's got like a, a 2.45 career or something. Postseason's still over four. So it's still big. Yeah. But you're David Price. I didn't know David no, Price. Is big. David, he's been Kershaw's on that list as well, but Price's is higher. Okay. So, yeah. And it's one of those things where one postseason by itself can change the narrative entirely because David Price doesn't have that. Mo- he doesn't have that. That ball and chain that he doesn't have that reputation anymore he is but he that, did he, he had that reputation exactly he was absolutely. the guy he was the clayton kershaw before clayton kershaw but now he has a world series and he pitched lights out in the postseason starting actually in 2017 when he came out of the bullpen he yeah. pitched out of the bullpen because he had injury problems all of 2017 and he pitched out of the bullpen in the postseason he was effective even though the red sox got knocked out very next year Effective in both his starts and coming out of the bullpen, and that's something. And I, and I just want to say too that what makes it both those guys even credible, just from a, a beautiful story perspective, is that I'll say this again: like both those guys in their performances, like they absolutely needed it. Um, you know, like we said before. Clayton Kershaw to pitch away in Game Five after that all-time historic Game Four loss. I mean, the, all the momentum is with Tampa, and they can absolutely not afford a bad Kershaw start. And the same with David Price. I mean, a lot of people say the Red Sox were a lot better, but you know, on paper the series was even. And you know, after that epic performance in Game Three, the the whole momentum had shifted. So. You know, Price had some momentum to close out the series, so the teams really needed needed them both. Yeah, exactly. And in other sports, you can look at foils for uh, yeah. the opposite scenario, where guys are able to raise their game yeah. in the playoffs. the The first two that come to mind are actually Eli Manning in football mm. <laughs> and Madison Bumgarner. Bumgarner is does not have a spectacular career ERA in the regular season, mm. but in the postseason. He just becomes unhittable. I don't know what it is. I don't even think he knows what it is. But whenever whenever the, cl- the calendar turns to October, Madison Bumgarner becomes regular yep. season Clayton Kershaw. <laughs> and kind of vice versa. Yep. In football, Eli Manning, I know there's not a strictly football podcast, but Eli Manning is not a spectacular res- regular season quarterback. He's a good quarterback. Or he was a good quarterback before he retired. But he beat Tom Brady and Bill Belichick in two different Super Bowls. I mean, that's obviously not him alone, but he was obviously a big part of that. So the, the idea of of superstars diminishing on the big stage and 
not role players, but you know, unheralded players raising yeah. their game for the postseason is a really interesting thing to look at just from a psychological perspective. And you and I talked about this in our sports psychology yeah. class back freshman year when we had yeah. uh, that class together. So it's an interesting thing, interesting thing to look at at the very least. And I think we'll, we'll unpack that a little more as we get into the baseball offseason and the, the topics become a little more sparse and the content itself isn't as heavy. We'll talk about some of the psychological advantages and, and disadvantages of, of, of being mm-hmm. a person who needs to achieve success and person who needs to avoid failure. But that's a whole sports psychology discussion. We'll get to that at some point in the future. But mm-hmm. we do mm-hmm. have to talk about soccer, football, mm-hmm. the beautiful game whatever you want to call it, specifically in England and beyond. There's obviously Champions League action this week and next week, and there was last week as well. A lot of Champions League match days back to back to back. Mm. Unfortunately for us, though, there's there aren't any, I guess, blockbusters. I mean, Manchester United Arsenal is a big game, but both of those clubs have not been the same levels that they were back Mm. in the the Wenger, uh, Sorales Ferguson days. Right. But it's still a good matchup and it's one to watch for sure, but it's not the it's not the big heavyweight one and two at the top of the table matchup that we're used to seeing. Yep. But I'm interested to see what we we what we what kind of result we get from the game because mm. neither team has been all that consistent in the league. But That's in right. Europe they've both been phenomenal. Great. They've absolutely been great. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So United, a perfect two out of two so far in the Champions League in their group. Beating PSG beating, uh, and thrashing, Leipzig. Yeah, too. thrashing Leipzig at home, and three weeks ago losing to Tottenham six one at home. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, just the beauty of the Premier League. It it absolutely is. The Premier League is crazy, and yeah, I, I'm I'm very curious to see what what this Man United team has. I mean, I just think there's so much there's so much questions it just feels like it feels like every week the outlook is different you know one week it's like this team is really overrated you know ollie should he have the job the next week it's like all right this is this is how the team is supposed to look pogba looks good marcus rashford looks you know really great so it's like they're so inconsistent but yeah i think it's going to be a a very good game yeah for them it's like the good is good and the bad is bad there's no in between. Yeah. There's no just ho hum. And it was funny. I was watching the highlights from mm-hmm. their game last week against Chelsea United. And mm. interestingly enough, there's a certain play in that game that wasn't included in the extended highlights video that NBC Sports puts out. Okay. And it was the no call, red card, should have been red card, and penalty on Harry Maguire <laughs> or Aspilicueta. And the wrestling move he decided to bust out. Yes, we can talk about we can take this and talk about VAR, but I want to focus in on hmm. Man United. Whether or not you and I like it, they are the biggest club in England, if not one of the top three clubs in the world. They're no Real Madrid, Barcelona, but they're right up yeah. there. And yeah, you have to admit there's a little bit of a bias towards those clubs. I mean, this may be sour grapes because you know. Liverpool are Liverpool, but at the end of the day, I think there is this this gravitational pull towards United that we don't see from other clubs. And, you know, obviously a good United is good for the league, 
because of the revenue, number one, but also because of the, the sheer attraction to the Premier League. But this is not the Manchester United that we're used to seeing. This is a very different Manchester United. It's a gettable Manchester United in domestic competition, surely. But then you look at Europe. They beat the Champions League finalists. And they, <laughs> at, in Paris, and they beat RB Leipzig, the semifinalists, at home. And they thrashed them. So, like, what, which, <laughs> which Man United are we seeing? I think that the really interesting thing about about them on is that truthfully, and this is sad for I think Manchester United fans, which is that when you talk about teams like this, you want to be a title winning team or a team that can compete with the European giants. Like you, you want to just become an elite team mm-hmm. and. No matter how bad the rebuild takes, you just want to feel like you're there. And unfortunately, with Manchester United, they are just not a, 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 a title or a European giant on the field. And I just don't think they are. Um, and yes, they can have their good days and, and certainly compete with teams. But like, you know, you look at obviously Liverpool and Manchester City are giants. And you even look like a team at Chelsea and you say, this team, when they, you know, I know I'm a little biased, but you say, look, this team has more than enough talent. If they can just gel a little bit better and correct some certain things, this team is absolutely talented enough to compete with any team in Europe. Man United's just not the case. And it's just, sad as United fan, yes, they can come their good days, they have their good days, but until they fill some of the gaps in their squad, until they get a new manager... And until they get more consistency from certain players, like the Pogba's, the Rashford, the Martial's, they're just the Maguire's. They're just not gonna to. They're they're gonna be no more than a good day, bad day team. That's what they are. Yeah. Maybe a team that's right now they're a top four team, like they're competing for top four, but they're not competing for a title. They're not competing for European ti- titles. So I, I think it's just a recognition that they they need some they need some, they have work to do. Yeah, and personally, I mean, you can probably agree with this as well. I mean, a little less so because you've seen your team win multiple Premier Leagues as a fan. Right. But seeing United go through what other clubs like Liverpool, their arch rivals, and even Man City have gone through in their history is kind of entertaining. You know, I, I don't want to hate on United too much, but it's like it just shows you the level of ups and downs you can have in the sport. Man United in, in the 90s and 2000s up until 2013 were basically unstoppable. For Alex, Sir Alex Ferguson created one of the most invincible sides ever. Not actually invincible like Arsenal, but one of the most feared sides in Europe that we've seen in a long time. I think up there they're up there with Pep's Barcelona, oh, certainly. Yeah. They're up there mm-hmm. with Real, those Real Madrid teams. Mm-hmm. You know, pick pick your poison. <laughs> honestly, it's Real yeah. Madrid, uh, and you know, to see them fall from that is just a reminder that no matter how good you think a team is, no matter how long you think they can be successful for, nothing's really permanent, and no, and the and mighty can, can fall really far. And that, and Simeone, it's interesting. Now that you bring up, 
that you brought up, I think that's the most interesting thing thought I had just now and just like, you know, you can talk about the podcast is like, we just have to acknowledge that Manchester United are what they are. They're not the old team they were. There's not a quote unquote return to normal until they can show it. Their default status is, is lower now. It is what it is. And I'm not convinced that, you know, they, they are, they're, they have to improve. Yeah. They, they absolutely have to improve. Yeah. They're, they're not what they were. And I, I will just say that, you know, they are really, really at risk of falling pretty hard, in my opinion. Yeah. No, I know I'm... it's hard to say after they, they thrashed uh, Leipzig, but, I mean, it's gonna, the way they've started in the Premier League, I mean, it's like, are they a lock to make the top four? No, not by any stretch. And this will be the second year, you know, well, okay, this would be the second time in, in three years where they didn't, so pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those seasons, though, I mean, through, what, seven games, six games, seven games? it's looking like, you know, does anyone want to actually challenge Liverpool and Arsenal for top four? I mean, outside of the established big six. Yeah. You know, it's it's basically right now, top of the table, it's Liver, it's Everton and Liverpool. Aston Villa with a game in hand or third. Yep. Like, is, is there someone who wants to, who someone from the original top six who wants to <laughs> be in the top four right now? Because it's right now it's Liverpool and everyone else outside of the top four. But, you know, obviously yeah. it's it's an incredibly small sample size and we'll get into that too much. But, you know, sure. it's just one of those things that any given match week, anything can happen. And to have that level of consistency is really a testament to the level of a team that they had under Sir Alex Ferguson and what has changed since then. Yeah, so, uh, absolutely. You know, uh, absolutely. You know, I and also just also but I also just want to say, too, that it's it's to the squad, too. It's not just the management. Yeah. This team doesn't have the depth, and it doesn't have the star power or consistent players that that team did either. Yeah. So. And of course, you know, this is early in the season. We could be wrong. They could go on an exceptional run. They could make a huge splash in January and yep. bring in three major reinforcements. But as it is right now, you know, like you're saying, they, they don't really have the, the depth to be able to withstand the slog that's coming up right. between November and February because there is a lot... After the November international break, there's a lot of games. Mm-hmm. Basically, after that international break, we're looking at a month until the festive period, then the festive period, and then the end of the festive period, mm-hmm. and then the Champions League knockout stages. So there's literally no break. If they want to compete for major silverware, they have to be ready, and their squad, you know, like you're saying, I, you know, I also don't think it's big enough. I mean, yes, they have talented youngsters off the bench in Greenwood and Brandon Williams, Yep. But ultimately, you feel like they need a little more. And that's weird to say for Man United because they are such a financial powerhouse in, yep. in the world. Not even just in England, just in the, wor- in the world. But, you know, that remains to be seen. So that's, game, that's a game to watch for on Sunday. Arsenal-Man United uh, should be a good one. Mm-hmm. But it's not, it's not the fixed. It's not the, the was it, the barn buster that it was before? No, it's not, it isn't. It's not nearly. It doesn't have that same, that same bite to it. It's sad. Yeah. Speaking of teams that don't have the same bite as they used to, particularly a couple weeks ago, uh, Liverpool's injury crisis just keeps getting worse. Uh, Fabinho, who's been filling in for Virgil van Dijk at center back, 
got injured yep. on we- uh, Tuesday against Michelin in the Champions League. Yep. And it looks like he's going to be out until at least at least after mm. the international break in November. Yep. Which is going to leave Klopp with one of his senior center backs fit for yep. this weekend because Joel Matip is unlikely to play on Wednesday as on sorry, on Saturday as well. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about this last week and it's one of those things where, you know, I was very quick to defend Klopp and say, you know, we didn't need to buy another center back. Fabinho's Fabinho can fill in. Jordan Henderson, hell, he can fit in. He can fill in if he needs to. He's got youngsters in the in the club who can make a difference. But ultimately, it's it's one of those things where you know Klopp will likely say this tomorrow in his press conference. But it's very much one of those things that's you know it's like, hey, this is a very rare occurrence. Rarely do you see injuries like this to players of the same position happen <laughs> that close to each other. And it's one of those things where even if you plan for it. What's to say it doesn't happen in the attacking sense? So say they don't buy Diego Jota in the summer and say they buy another center back. What's to say two attackers don't get hurt? What's to say two midfielders don't get hurt? They don't reinforce the midfield. So it's it's those one of those things like I was talking about earlier. It's damned if you do, damned if you don't. And that's the that's the issue that managers have to face on a regular basis. And so, you know, again, I'll say I I don't mind Klopp's decision not to go out and splash eighty million pounds on a certain defender, mm. whether that's uh, Koulibaly from Napoli or, um, or I mean, any other quality center back. I know they're looking at uh, one of Schalke's young center backs now as cover for, for Van Dyke in January, but that's only because now there's an, a really significant crisis at center back. But typically, you don't need to plan for stuff like that. I mean, you do, but... In a pandemic, even a club like Liverpool, after winning the Champions League and then the next year winning the Premier League, having the financial flexibility to be able to do that and remain sustainable is tough. And for a club yep. that hasn't had continued success for an extended period like United, like Chelsea, <laughs> like Man City, even like Arsenal, it's it's hard to be able to do that. <laughs> so let me ask you this, Owen. What do you think this means for the team right now? I mean, can they get by I mean, is there going to be a big drop-off in play from the team? There, I mean, okay, let's get the one thing out of the way. We talked about this last week. I'm not going to deny this. I'm going to make the same point this week. There's going to be a drop-off in the standard. They're going to concede more goals this year than they have in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say they're not going to be a good team. That's not mm-hmm. to say they can win close games. Mm-hmm. It's just that they're going to miss the quality of a world-class center back. And mm-hmm. even in his absence, a solid defensive midfielder who filled in admirably at that role for a couple games and then unfortunately had the the injury bug hit and you know it's it's not something that you can necessarily see coming and even if you plan for it at one position you have two others and if you don't have the money to be able to do that and remain sustainable in the long term and we know (laughs) fsg are all about sustainability rather than just straight up success they want to see teams remain profitable and efficient in the way they're able to keep generating revenue streams and remain a profitable organization. You're just not going to see the kind of, the kind of cash that, you know, say a Manchester city can splash on a defender or even a man United or a Chelsea. It's just not the Liverpool way to do things. And I don't think it's an indictment of Klopp Mm -hmm. necessarily. I'm sure he says, yeah, I I would like to have another player at this position, but does it make financial sense for the club? Is it within our means? Is it something that is going to upset the squad if we just bring in? If we show this team of players who went from one season to the next relatively unchanged 
and went from winning a Champions League to winning a Premier League by a runaway margin and adding a world-class defender. That sure. message it sends says basically, yeah, you guys aren't good enough. We're going to bring in this superstar. So Klopp is, yep. ver- is very wary of that. He's a very good man manager, and he understands the psychology of uh, his player. He understands the, the mindsets of his players. And it's, it's very much a do-your-job, next-man-up kind of mentality. So it's going to be Reese Williams. It's going to be uh, Nat, uh, Matt Phillips, or Nat Phillips? Nathan Phil- yeah. Phillips? Yeah. The Liverpool yeah. center, the young okay. center back who... Annual, technically, yeah. yeah. Who came back from uh, came back from loan last year to knock Everton out of the FA Cup and then went back on loan immediately. That was one of the highlights of last year, I think. That was a great game. Yeah, Curtis Jones with the what seventy eighth minute screamer. Top that was five four game. The five four. No, that five five uh, five five was Arsenal. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that that's was right. that was against Arsenal. Uh, Origi, of course, with the the equalizer in the ninety fifth minute. Because yep. that's that's what oh, he does. Right. He scores oh, big yeah. goals. That's oh, all. That he does. was incredible. Yeah, no, I remember. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, wow. But yeah, back to the point. It's Klopp's gonna rely on. He's gonna rely on youth. He knows youth is ready to go. He, you know, he knows that sometimes you can't have the ideal scenario to throw young kids into the equation. But if the situation calls for it, you just have to do it sometimes. Yeah, and um, no, absolutely. Uh, he's gonna have to rely on youth. He's gonna have to, you know, they're gonna have to fill in the gap in leadership. Um, and I mean, I will say one point, which I do think one interesting thing is that, you know, I have noticed like Liverpool has made some tweaks to their lineup. They're going a little more attacking this year. They're playing a lot of 4-2-3-1. You know, Jota has been getting a lot of playing time. They're, they're, they're going on the attack a little bit more. And maybe, just maybe, that little tactical wrinkle could help them in a time like this um, when they have you know, defensive problems. So I, I think that's one little thing to watch out for. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they, they're not as reliant on, they can win higher scoring games or they can even be on the, fr- I mean, obvi- they can be on the front foot even more than they were. That, that That's one thing. Sometimes your, your best defense is, is offense, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's one thing to watch out for. Yeah, and especially when a certain Spanish midfielder or Spanish nationality, Brazilian born midfielder comes back from injury another injury thanks to everton thank you everton for injuring two <laughs> of our best players that's all you're yeah. good for hope you get relegated uh when tiago comes back from injury he's going to be an important cog in midfield because he can sit in the number six and not act as a kind of destroyer who's someone who's going to break up play but yeah. he's going to be someone who just calmly distributes the ball from side yeah, to side keeps the play around. going passes it around here and there Maybe looks for a pass in between the lines here and there. Maybe hits a diagonal to one of the fullbacks. But mm. he's going to help Liverpool control games a lot better and make it so that they can win games just by literally passing the hell out of their opponents. I remember last year against yeah. Sheffield at home, that was literally what Klopp said the game plan was, was just to score a couple early goals and then bludgeon them to death with however many passes they had that game, like 700 passes or 800, however many passes they had that game. It was a stupid number. But... Mm-hmm. With Thiago, that's going to make that kind of game plan a lot easier. And in games like help. that, you have, to be ready on, you have to be ready for the counterattack, certainly, and set pieces, of course. But and also, yeah, and also, you think about even dropping Firmino in the hole, mm-hmm. like they've been doing uh, too. Another way to just link up play, mm-hmm. dominate possession. That might be their best option: is just to dominate the ball, dominate possessions. And look, look. Here's the one thing I'll say: first of all, Liverpool are not as structurally 
open as some of the teams that really struggle on counterattacks. Mm-hmm. But look, as much as we criticize some of these big squads for their defensive frailties, you know, Liverpool are, are still nowhere near that. And it look, it's hard if you get, look, one or two chances and you got to put them away. I mean, yes, maybe they'll concede more, but if Liverpool dominate the game like they do, I mean, it's going to leave very, still very little margin for error. And also one thing I should just mention, you know, two wins in a row in the Champions League. Champions League doesn't, in the knockout stage, I don't think that even begins till February. Yeah. So in that competition, they should be fine. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's really the Premier League that they got to worry about. Yeah, and I think by that point, by, by February, Klopp will have assessed the squad to the point where he understands what needs to change, if anything, yeah. and he'll go out and make the change if he needs to. Remember, Virgil van Dijk was a January buy for the club. Yes, I mean, he, he was linked to come in the summer, but that's a whole other thing entirely. So whether or not he's actually a true, quote-unquote, January acquisition is one thing. But, you know, I, I trust Jurgen Klopp to be very, very smart about this. This yeah. is not his first time dealing with issues like this or dealing with clubs that don't have a lot of money to spend and have to get creative. That's right. He knows what he's doing. He's won basically everywhere he's been. So to any... Liverpool fans listening to this who are a little worried about the team, I'd say just trust in Klopp until at least February. If the results in February are not what you expect, then you can get a little concerned. But ultimately, I mean, he brought Liverpool their first title in 30 years. Can you really blame him all that much for any any issues that he potentially causes by a lack of activity? I mean, I don't know. It's, it's all no. speculation. I do want to switch over to Chelsea, though, because we've been going at this for quite a while, almost two hours. Oh, yeah. I want to let you... Uh, talk about Chelsea a little bit because the difference that a good goalkeeper has made for that oh, squad <laughs> is literally yep. night and day. Yeah. Uh, Mendy's made a huge difference for the team. Um, I, look, absolutely. Um, look, I think, you know, and as these other sports will end and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk a lot more soccer, you know, there's a lot you can get into, but that's definitely, I mean, Look, the big picture takeaway for Chelsea right now, great goalkeeper so far, no jinx, and three clean sheets in a row. And um, yes, Mendy has made some huge... He's in um, the Champions League, he's made some big saves. He made some great saves in that Man United game. I mean, that save against, uh, I think, Rashford. Yeah, at the like, end of the game? Oh. Yeah, diving to his left. That was a phenomenal save. And, and the keeper uh, should be proud of that. Yeah, and... Look, it, as you know with Liverpool, it, it, it absolutely makes night and day. Now, you know, Chelsea and, and Frank, and so, and then in terms of Chelsea itself, you know, Frank Lampard was talking at the end of uh, the Champions League game against Kranzdor, um, and he said, we're, we're starting to get the balance right. I, I like the balance that we're having, and that's the big thing. Chelsea's still trying to tinker with personnel and formation. They kind of switched from a back three to a back four, but they... They're, they're starting to get the discipline better. And so, you know, I, I think this is just a team where, you know, I do think that they could use a legitimately, like, top-class center back. But they're going to start hitting their best form pretty soon, I think. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think the results of late have been only positive for Chelsea. They give them a lot of confidence going forward. <laughs> This weekend's going to be a big test because it is against a team who likes to sit back and focus on the, you know, 4-4-2, two banks of four, hoof it up to your big six-foot-four center mm-hmm. forward, you know, classic kind of English counterattacking football. 
And it'll be yep. an interesting test because it'll leave, you know, if, if Chelsea want to go and dominate the game, as they probably will, it'll leave space in behind, it'll leave space in the counterattack, and whether or not yep. they'll be able to handle it defensively, I think having a good goalkeeper will help with that. A lot. But of course, we don't we don't know, you know, any given Sunday or in the NFL, any given any given match week in the Premier League. So it's something very interesting to watch. Um, you know, I think they're finally starting to kind of hit their rhythm, which is not something as a, a, a rival that you want to see. Mm. But, you know, again, this was not going to be one of those seasons that just ends up in a catastrophe. You know, Chelsea, yeah, Chelsea that, are too well equipped to deal with situations like that. I think that what I will say, yeah, no, they're too talented. I mean, they just, they've spent too much money yeah. to have a low floor. But I think that the the Champions League game against Kransdorf was a flash of how scary this team can look when they're right. I mean, Ziyech gets a goal, Pulisic gets a goal, Werner draws a penalty, you know, uh, Pulisic and Havertz are, when he comes on, are linking pretty well. You know, hudson Adoy gets a goal. Um, that front four with, you know, Havertz as a number 10 and the three are, I mean, really scary when you give them space. Yeah. So I just can't wait to see them. Um, you know, they've got to figure out the balance. You know, I'm not sure... You can necessarily play a four-two-three-one against these really good teams the way they are without the great, you know, pressing that other teams do to, you know, pr- to stop, uh, prevent the teams from capitalizing on your open defense. But I mean, it's start- the the players are starting to gel better. So yeah, yeah, I think it's it's only progress in the right direction. And I just want to get your quick take on this before we go to hot takes and and get out of here. Yeah. What do you think uh, my personal take on Timo Werner has looked like through the first few games of the season? So my take was initially that his ceiling is a Jamie Vardy type ceiling mm-hmm. where, yeah, he could, he could score 20 in a season, but I'm not going to see him scoring 30 in a season, all comps, or 25 in the league, personally. Mm-hmm. But... How would you assess what okay. you've seen out of him in the first few games of the season? Yeah. Um, you know, I can... I, I, I think... Uh, look, I can see both sides of the argument. I, I can absolutely see the... Here's the thing that I see with Timo Werner. The thing I see with Timo Werner is... One of the reasons he struggles against you talk about defenses that drop off is I think his movement could be better. I think that his movement around the goal to kind of just get free from defenders and nick in crosses like a Tammy Abraham does could be a lot better. But he's also shown lots of flashes and there there are good moments. He he will dribble past someone, get free in the box, kind of just misses finishes. So I don't think there's anything too concerned to worry about, but I can see why the criticism is for him. And overall, I will say he hasn't gotten off to a great start. You'd wish he'd, he'd scored more to this point. Yeah. And I think, you know, the tough thing is obviously going to a new league. Yeah. Uh, you know, as a young player and a club like Chelsea where the expectation is so high. And that can weigh yeah. on you. Of course, that can weigh on mm-hmm. anybody when you are expected from basically day one to perform, even if the manager says, I'm not expecting you to perform from day one, 
the fans are and the club yeah. is because yeah. they are investing that much money in you that they expect you to be a star right out of the gate. And, you know, it's obviously unfair to say that through, what is it, eight games, nine games he's played in all competitions at, at this point? Yeah. Uh, that he's been bad? No, he's been, <clears throat> he's been serviceable. Excuse me. And yeah, I think he'll only get better if he continues on this kind of pattern. Now, the caveat is obviously English football is different. The the whole ten men behind the ball thing is not something you see as commonly in Germany or in Europe, but it's basically every team in the top half, or sorry, every team in the bottom half in England has that ability to just pack it in and hit you on the counter attack. And those are the kinds of systems, ironically, that Timo Werner plays really well in because he is yeah, so quick and he understands how to how to break on the counter attack. Yeah. And, and, you know, to be honest, you saw a little bit of that in the, the Southampton game. The game was a little bit more open. He scored two goals. He was really linking up well with the front three. So I, I can absolutely see what you're saying. And, I, I, yeah, so it's, it's definitely a criticism. And I, can, I, 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 am, I am a little bit worried, too. But, you know, we'll see what happens. We'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see what happens. He doesn't quite look super sharp yet. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think... We have yet to see the best. I mean, it, it's it's early, of course, mm. and we have yet to see the best, in my, in my opinion. But again, I I'm not I don't rate him as highly as I think others would. And I I said this before: the reason Liverpool went after him in the offseason was to cover one of the front three. He's not to start. He wasn't going to start in that Liverpool team. I think that's give, why he said he he uh, didn't want to go there. Yeah, exactly. Because like, he said he he was guaranteed playing time at Chelsea. He wanted to play and and. He, Let's be honest. He's probably making a lot more money at Chelsea than he would at Liverpool, just from his wages perspective. He, I yeah. mean, I, I'm pretty sure he's on like what at least two hundred thousand a week, mm-hmm. if if uh, not yeah. a, a full three hundred thousand a week, which is absurd. Absolutely. But but yeah, you know, this is all speculation. That's why we're fans of the sport. That's why we do what we do. That's why we, in some cases, wake up stupidly early on Saturdays, and in some cases, how we watch recorded games and and you know keep our phones off until we watch the end of the game. Like I did with the Merseyside Derby a couple of weeks ago. Oh, I wish I didn't watch that game though. That's uh, uh, that was yeah. let's get into hot takes because this is the part of the show that I like the most, and I think the difficult thing is going to be keeping it if we do segment the show like we were talking about at the at the beginning mm-hmm. uh, of keeping these consistent with the two episodes. So I think what we'll actually do is we'll keep this part uh, on both the soccer and the baseball segments, or whatever, however we decide to split up from a, a perspective, a segmented perspective, we'll put it that way. So, yeah. for our hot takes, Willie, yep. what you got? Well, why don't you go first? Well, we can go back and forth one at a time. All right, here's, uh, here's my hot take. And, you know, I kind of hinted at this earlier, but the only reason Clayton Kershaw has a ring now is because the Dodgers figured out how to protect him. They figured okay. out that you, wow. by all means, have to take the pressure off Clayton Kershaw and put the ball in his hand and say, we don't need seven shut from you. We don't need six shut from you. Five shut would be cool. Four shut is really all we're asking for. Because wow. four is essentially, you know, if you, if you figure in a couple hits, it's basically once through the lineup. Wow. And okay. they were able to do that because they built a bullpen 
that had a proper mix of long relievers and high leverage guys who came in and performed. Julio Urias turned into a long guy, but also a high leverage guy at the end of the game. Victor Gonzalez was good in spurts. Henley Jansen was good in spurts, not the whole way through. Pedro Baez was good in spurts. Dylan Flora was was solid. Mm-hmm. Gonsolin out of the pen as an opener and as part of a starter. Uh, he struggled a little bit, but on the whole was good. Dustin May, high leverage guy, high velocity. Yeah. And what that does... Oh, and, and the addition of Walker Bueller, too. And Walker Bueller really turning into Walker F and Bueller. Oh, that is a huge help for Kershaw. Because he doesn't have to be Clayton Kershaw yeah. anymore. He can just be another pitcher on the staff who goes out and throws the ball over the plate and hope they swing and miss. Or not hope they swing and miss at it, but gets swings and misses. So, really, the only reason that he has a ring now is because the Dodgers became a complete team regardless of his record in the past. Yeah, I mean, I can't... I can't. Look, if they don't have... Look, if the Dodgers don't have the resources, right? They'd probably leave Kershaw in for mm-hmm. in game one and five, right? Yep, yep. Um, so absolutely, look, you, you are absolutely right. I can't, I can't fault you for saying that. Um, and look, that five and two thar- third start game was wobbly. And man, that could have ended really badly. Yep. And I can also say that if the Dodgers lose that game, I think they, they may very well lose game six. So... You know, I can't, I can't disagree. I can't disagree with you on that. That's, that's my take, and I'm sticking to it. But it's irrelevant now. Kershaw's a world champion. Yeah. And he, he earned it. He didn't just ride a better team, like my take may have insinuated. Mm-hmm. He went out there and he pitched. He pitched well. Okay. So hats off to Clayton Kershaw. He's a world champ. Wow. Okay. All right, Owen. I'll give you, I'll give you my first one. So. Like a lot of these said, this one might turn out to be really foolish because he actually did have a good year. But I thought of this hot take because I don't know if you saw the video of of Manny Machado. I don't know if you saw the did you did you see the video of his interaction with the fan? Mm-mm. So Manny Machado had um, a an interaction with the fan, and it's interesting. This fan released a clip. Uh, oh, the oh, no, no, no. Now I know what you're talking about. You're talking about when he was in at Dodger Stadium. Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Go ahead. Okay. So, I'm just going to make a really bold prediction, which is that I think Manny Machado is going to turn out to be a little bit of a bust. Uh, honestly, I don't hate the take. Okay. From what we've seen from him so far, he hasn't been you know, the complete Manny Machado that yeah. the Padres signed well, him to be after 2018. And to be fair, I mean, he had a pretty good year this year, mm-hmm. but it was short sample size. But last year was a, a pretty big disappointment. Yeah. But I think the first. thing that's going to help him going forward, and this is going to be interesting to watch, is his relationship with Fernando Tatis Jr. Oh, yeah. And how it people... Like yeah, and people around the club have has said that not only has Machado made Tatis better, but Tatis has made Machado better. Because yeah. Tatis has been like little brother, big brother with yep. Machado. So if you yeah. have someone who's following you around constantly trying to get a look at how you go about your business, you're going to kind of step it up a little bit and be a little more professional. And you're going to you know, focus on the little things that ultimately can lead to success, more sustained success. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a really interesting dynamic. And it's, you know, what's so funny is it's almost like uh, 
yeah, it's so interesting how he deferred. He went to third base. You know, he's brought out the best in him, and he's maybe also just excited him because he, he makes the team good. Mm-hmm. So, absolutely, that is a, a really big dynamic to watch for. But, yeah, I'm curious to watch Machado going forward. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see if he's going to be the guy that the Padres and people think he, he really could be. A guy that's, you know, an elite fielder and hitter. But, um, you know, he shows a lot of power, but he can go hot and cold at the plate overall. No, definitely. And mm-hmm. it's interesting to watch that dynamic unfold, particularly mm-hmm. for Machado, because he's, I don't want to say he's had attitude problems, but mm-hmm. that's always been one of the big assessments of his game is his character and the way he kind of goes about his business. That's been one of the, the critiques. And, yeah. you know, that's a big part of whether or not a player is successful is if they're put in the right environment where they're able to go about their business in a way that doesn't impact other players of the team in a negative way, but also allows them to feel comfortable. So yeah. it's up to the Dodgers, to, or Dodgers, up to the Padres to create that kind of environment for Machado if they want him to be successful. That said, yeah. you know, it, it was the, this was the first full year of both Machado and Tatis, and Tatis missed a lot of last year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he. I think uh, last few months. Yeah, like and and I think that kind of played into the disappointment. But you know, after seeing Machado for a full year and Tatis for you know most of rookie year, I think this was kind of the coming out party for for both of them. Mm-hmm. At least Machado as a Padre, not you know he's already he's been in the league for a while, but for Tatis certainly. So, but yeah. I you know I can't I can't fault that take. He's making a lot of money, and for someone with yeah. that payroll or someone with that salary to be considered a bust, the the standard's pretty. I don't want to say low standard, but the threshold for them to be considered a bust is pretty low. Yeah. Just consider yeah, the money. No. But ultimately, yeah. I do understand what you're saying, and I do I do accept that take, yeah. We'll see. No, we'll see. I don't think it's necessarily will be a bad contract, quote-unquote, but we'll see. There's a lot of wiggle room. It's not going to be a pool hole situation or something like yeah. that. Yeah. No, I get what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. So right, you got? the only other hot take I have, and I actually just thought of this now, Just I'm, I'm looking ahead to what's coming up in the next couple of weeks in the world of sports. And there's a certain golf tournament in Georgia in a couple of weeks. Oh, masters yeah. is in two weeks, two weeks okay. from today is the first day of the masters. And yeah. part of me is very excited. Part of me is not really interested just because it's going to be different with no fans. It's going to mm. be different hearing less roars, fewer, fewer roars around Augusta. That's always been the defining part of any masters is the roars around the, the big Georgia pines. <laughs> And, yeah. you know, I have a take about the Masters. All right. Let's, I have a take about a specific, uh, two specific players. Okay, let's, let's hear was, it. The take was originally one, but I've decided to spice it up a little bit by, by adding another one. All right. So, Mr. 400-yard, 200-mile-an-hour uh, ball speed Bryson DeChambeau <laughs> is going to miss the cut. Wow. And okay. And the player donning that green jacket in two weeks from Sunday is none other than a one Rory McIlroy to complete the career Grand Slam. I love it, bro. Wow. I really want to see Rory win the the career Grand Slam. I want to see him win the Masters. And honestly, I think this is probably his best chance to do it because in a different-looking season, He's played more than I think I expected him to stateside. 
I don't know if he's playing this week or not, or next week. But. Uh, so yeah, no, he plays. He plays. Uh, you know, he, he's settled in Florida and he yeah. doesn't want to travel as much anymore. So. Yeah. He, and he played last week, I think. He at, did uh, out of Sherwood. Now, I think he, from what I saw, he played pretty well. Yeah, I mean, the, the big thing overall with McElroy, though, is you know he that that'll be interesting. Um, he 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 was on a historic tear before COVID, and for the most part, with the few exceptions recently. He really hasn't looked himself since um, the PGA Tour resumed uh, post-COVID uh, yeah. well, lockdown. I think, I think after the Tour Championship, though, I think that's the time when players get to you know mentally reset. And I think this is going to make, you know, having a, a major so early in the year mm. is going to make players who haven't won a major and players who haven't won, say, the career Grand Slam, like Rory, extra motivated to go out there and... And put in a performance that he can be proud of. And two well, weeks from now, you know, I think he has a really good shot to be holding up that, that green jacket. He'll be wearing that the beautiful, beautiful jacket only given to the winners of the most prestigious golf tournament in the world. Wow. I'm glad I thought you were gonna say Tiger again. I wanted to say Tiger like halfway halfway through my thought, but I was like, you know, uh Tiger did not really play well at Sherwood. He's not playing again until the Masters. And to not have that competitive sharpness and to not have that those competitive reps, it can really hurt you. I understand why he's doing what he's doing, just because he is what forty four at this point, or however old he is forty three, forty four, forty five, maybe I don't know. Yeah, I think I think he's forty three. So you know, ultimately, I'd like it to be Tiger personally, but I'd also be okay with Rory, and I think Rory has a better chance. And I'm just gonna say it now: I'll probably be wrong, but. The Green Jackets wow. going back to Northern Ireland. Yeah. No, I mean that would be a incredible story. I mean, yep. he's obviously you can he's he's fallen short at the Masters and and had some tough losses there. So yeah. So that, that that would really be epic. That'd really be epic. Yeah. Um. Okay, Owen. I have one more take. All right, what do you got for us? It's funny you uh, mentioned that because uh, it, it might also have a uh, golf take too, which is that. Now, this is I know more with my heart than my head. That's what these takes are about. Okay, I'm just going to say it. Um, You know, a lot of times the beauty of sports is these legends, you know, really go out. Um, I I, I think, Owen, that before it's done, Phil Mickelson will win a U.S. Open. Really? He, he, He has... He's shown really. He's shown glimpses of form. He has a lot left to give, and I know that's saying a lot because there's not really much you'd say he's ever going to really be able to play this open kind of course. But he's got more club head speed, and I just believe that he's going to do it. <laughs> well, he's 50 now, so you he know. He's, he's playing on the senior tour. But yeah, he's, he's playing on the senior tour, but he's in the best shape I think he's ever been in, in his, at the age of fifty, which is, you know, yeah, a, a few years ago would have been unprecedented, but now for golfers, it's like it's the norm. I'm not, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm more surprised about um, Phil Mickelson being in this good shape or Tom Brady. I'm, I'm not sure which I'm more, you know, mm, probably probably Phil, if you ask me. Think so? Because Brady has, you know, obviously football's it's a completely different sport, but 
Brady has been so well protected basically his entire career. I mean, Belichick's yeah. MO when Brady was quarterback is always offensive line. Control the line of scrimmage, and that means protect your franchise quarterback. He has, but he's, I mean, still. But yeah, he's, he's taking hits, of course. To be arguably, I mean, I don't care. You're right, he has time, but I mean, to arguably be, I would even say the best quarterback, yeah. like, still, like, that's incredible. Yeah. No, definitely. But I think, I think it's an interesting thing to watch with Phil because he's gotten progressively more fit the older he's gotten. Uh, his calves now are like the size of my head. <laughs> That's a massive exaggeration, but he has big calves now. And, and Tiger ribbed him when they had the match back in, when was it? Sometime in, uh, oh my God, I can't remember when the match was at this point. Some point in the summer. Uh, oh, but oh. Tiger uh, ribbed Phil for never shutting up about his calves. About, oh. his, about having big calves and hitting bombs. He got nice calves. Bro. So, he, got he does have nice calves. I got to give it to him. You know, respect. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. Well, I'll just say this. I mean, I would say out of your two, I mean, definitely Bryson DeChambeau missing the cuts probably the more surprising, but it, that can definitely happen. So, well, so the thing is, you know, obviously I don't have an in depth look at how Bryson is preparing for the Masters. Obviously, he's, I think he's the favorite right now, is he not? Or he's one of the favorites? Uh, I'm not sure about the odds or anything. Yeah, but so, he, you know, he's going to be one of the names we're going to talk about going into the Masters just because he did win the U.S. Open in such an impressive fashion on such a tough golf course. But, you know, here's the thing. Long hitters do well at Augusta, but you kind of also have to have a really, really good idea of how precise to be and how to judge conditions properly. And we know he's very precise when it comes to looking at conditions and assessing the game holistically. But at the same time, you also have to be able to putt on those greens and you have to be able to get up and down when you need to and go on runs when you need to. And sometimes I feel like in the distance age, when players are focusing on hitting at 400 yards, mm. the emphasis on short game and scoring diminishes yeah. and you also, can't have that and hope to win at Augusta. Also, also, you know, you need to hit irons. You need to hit, uh, angles you gotta be able to bend, work the ball both ways mm -hmm. and stuff too. you have to be so, precise if you're gonna yeah. miss in the trees and yeah. you have to be able to move the ball both ways with every club in the bag and that's that's why the masters is what it is it's not gonna test it's not gonna test potentially every facet of your game mm. every single round but it's gonna make you work it's gonna make you think and it's gonna put an emphasis on the more the intangibles if you will there's just there's just no other tournament like it in in the US Open or in the in the U.S. Open, there's no other tournament like it in golf, because it's the only tournament that's played on the same exact course every single year. Uh, every the only major, of course, that's mm -hmm. played on the same course every year. So, mm. but I honestly yep. think that he's he's you know his head's in the right place as far as gaining a statistical advantage with distance, but at the mm -hmm. same time, you do need to be able to put the ball in the hole in fewer shots than everyone else, and that's not always down to how far you hit it. Literally, just ask me. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm at least 20 yards further than most of the guys I play with, at least in some cases 50. But do I win every week? No, <coughs> because I, I can't always score. That's the difference in golf. And you have to be a complete player at that level to win. And Bryson is a more complete player than I think a lot of people give him credit for. But at the same time, if he becomes this one dimensional distance guy, then everything else is kind of go is going to kind of go by the wayside. 
Yeah, and and um, I mean, you know what, Owen? Maybe you're maybe you just need to uh, you know get in the gym more. It could be, you know, maybe 300 in the air is not far enough anymore. Yeah, that, that at, could be at the amateur level. But yeah, no, for sure. I think I'll just say about the Shambo. He he played pretty well before his win. Um, but the difference was he had come really close and he just was a little off with, with his iron play and putting at different times and he put it all together. Yeah. So no matter how long you hit it, you still got to be able to do everything. Exactly. Yep. End of story. Mm-hmm. Oof. Yeah. Well, uh, almost two and a half hours later, Yeah. That was, uh, that was... we have a full on mega podcast that we are going to split up into two parts so this hot takes part is at the end of whichever segment you're listening to whether that's baseball or soccer or the combined almost two and a half hour episode if, if that's your bag listening to us yap about sports for for that long um i don't think we have anything else to add before we get out of here i i think we're we, we've covered pretty much all the big stories between between baseball and soccer we didn't really talk about barcelona and and no. their president I- leaving but like you know, we'll talk about Barcelona when they win the Champions League again or when they actually don't get humiliated in the Champions League again because that seems to be a common theme for them. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. It's sports. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's something to keep us occupied during quarantine. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, true. But anyways, folks, uh, take care of your mental health. Take care of yourselves. Stay safe yep. out there. Uh, Willie, any last final thoughts before we get out of here? I do. I do have a final thought, and you don't have to say anything. All right. We don't have a long session. Yeah. I'll just say another thing, another managerial aspect of Kevin Cash that's getting very overlooked is the fact that, I don't know, I thought Yandy Diaz and Brasso were two hitters that were hitting well this postseason and hardly, I mean, didn't play that much in the Mm -hmm. series, particularly Brasso. So I thought that's a a thing. Yeah, I agree as well, definitely. I, I would have liked to see more of. Brasso specifically, just because of you know that home run against the Rollers Chapman. Hate to yeah. see it. Stuff like that. He's really stuff All right. Well, folks, take care out there. Stay safe. Uh, stay sane. By the time the next podcast comes around, uh, the election will have passed. We will probably yeah. still be sifting through the craziness that is this whole 2020 election cycle. We're not going to know the results, but yeah, we won't know the results definitively, but we'll have an idea of where everyone stands, where the country stands. And I think that is the most important part, uh, regardless of what your political affiliation is, please go vote. It's part of our democracy. Just participate yeah. in it. You have a right to do so. And please exercise that right. And your vote, no matter where you live, your vote matters, period. So, yep, absolutely. Anyways, this has been episode 24 of hot takes only for my co-host Willie. This is Owen. Signing off until next time. We'll see you next time. Same next week, I should say. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place here on Twitch, live streamed, or the very next day on Spotify, Anchor.fm, or wherever else you get your podcasts. The distribution is going to be wider than it is right now, but we'll get there one day. Take care, folks.